VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, December the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's producing the program this morning, so you'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, boy, the wind and the rain lashing at the bedroom window this morning made for dragging myself out of bed. And this morning, for the first time in years, press the snooze button. And was thinking about getting up or staying in the bunk. But here I am and looking forward to speaking with you this morning. A couple of emails overnight telling the tale that I was also painfully familiar with. They were the victims of the porch pirate. So what that is in reference to is so many people are shopping online, of course. And so you don't really know when the package is going to show up, of course. And maybe you're at work. You get the notification on your phone that the package has been dropped off. You hustle home for lunch or you hustle home after work to try to get it before the pirates do. And gone. It happened to us a couple of weeks ago. Or maybe it was last Friday. And it's happening to people all over the place. So whether it be asking a neighbor to keep an eye out. And, of course, people are talking about having it delivered to your office or other places much more secure than the porch. There for all to see and for some to steal. Anyway, that's too bad it's happening to people out there, but we see and hear those stories a lot. A couple of quick sports notes. Today, 1925, the very first game ever played at Madison Square Garden, which is a pretty cool place to watch a hockey game. It was between the Montreal Canadiens and the New York Americans. The Habs beat them 3-1. And people bemoan the fact just how much athletes get paid, and some of the numbers are absolutely obscene. Get a load of this contrast. In 1980, uh, Yankees outfielder Dave Winfield signed the richest contract in Major League Baseball. It was for 10 years, $15 million. Fast forward to today, and the highest paid player is a guy named Aaron Judge, also pays for the Yankee. His contract, Winfield's was 10 years, $15 million. Judge's is 9 years, $360 million. $40 million per year. Oh, man. $360 million for playing some ball. All right, and as you know, I've been watching a lot of soccer. Uh, yesterday, France ended the Moroccan magic, beat them 2-0 to move off to Sunday's final, and it's a tasty final, to say the very least. France taking on Argentina, so a lot on the line to say the very least. And France, of course, defending champions. Messi looking for his first World Cup, and if he wins it, I think the argument is there. Best player of all time. I read a story in The Economist, and you know, we talk about what it costs to host any type of national or international competition. Some people confused and concerned with the amount of money the city of St. John's is paying, for instance, to prepare for the 2025 Canada Summer Games. Then you look at what people refer to as the legacy infrastructure left behind when you host something like a World Cup or, or like an Olympic Games. In Qatar, it was 12 years ago that they were awarded this year's FIFA World Cup. Since then, they've spent about $300 billion. Now, it's not really itemized exactly if every single cent was spent for in preparation for the soccer tournament, but $300 billion, most of which was spent for preparations, they only expect an injection into their economy of some $17 billion. So a little bit upside down, but of course the Qataris flush with cash. Okay, let's talk about wind again. For starters, well, let's ease into the wind conversation. Today in 1939, so 83 years ago today, Gone with the Wind premiered uh, in the United States, of course, set in the American South, backdrop is the American Civil War, so it tells the story of Scarlett O'Hara, of course, played by Vivian Lee, 
and her romantic pursuits, in particular of uh, Rhett Butler, Clark Gable. The search for Scarlett. There was 1,400 women interviewed and auditioned for the part before Vivian Lee eventually won the role. The film scored the historic wins for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress, and that lady's name is Hattie McDaniel. She became the first African-American woman to win an Academy Award, set the record for total number of nominations and wins at 10, uh, triumphing over, of course, The Wizard of Oz. So, still touted as one of the very best American-made films. And when you adjust for monetary inflation, it's still the highest-grossing film in history. Amazing. Gone with the Wind, 83 years ago today. All right, let's get back to a bit more localized wind. So yesterday, the province, through Minister Parsons, who of course is the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology, talked about the 31 proposals, 31 companies proposing 73 wind energy projects for over 3.8 million hectares of land across the province. It's been whittled down somewhat. It's going to be some 1.6 million hectares of crown land that will be in consideration and open for bidding. Not a whole lot of detail here. For instance, like fiscal framework, what might be in it for the province regarding how much it's going to cost these companies to avail of the wind and the water. You know, what it would look like for the training for local jobs. Thankfully, it's a leasing process. So the concern long was, if one of these companies is successful in getting a piece of crown land, and all of a sudden their business model doesn't turn out the way they anticipated, then what becomes of the land? They own it, and what would be the opportunities for them to do something else with it as opposed to wind energy project? So it's a leasing uh, proposal, so that's a good thing. We really do need to know the other questions, to the answers to those questions about what the fiscal framework looks like. So it's a two-stage bidding process is what we're told here. Okay, and when they whittle down the land, of course, to remove some of the places that would be you know, some environmental sensitivities. Now, there's still going to be some questions there. And the one project that gets all the pushback, as far as I can tell, is still the one on the Port of Port Peninsula with John Risley and his World Energy GH2. But here's what happens in the two-stage bidding process. So, first phase, phase set for March, looking at the financing and the experience of the companies and the proposal. Second to begin in April, apparently it's a more in-depth look at the electricity grid connection requirements. That's a big one. We don't really know, like if most of these projects, and we don't know how many out of the 31 are for wind energy export, for instance in the green hydrogen world, and or domestic use, or commercial use, and their interaction with our grid, and the possibility to sell back excess power that they don't use on site to the grid. We don't know any of these questions at this moment in time. There's also got to be more consultation, a social license is referenced. If you speak to folks in the Port of Port Peninsula, of course there's going to be some that are absolutely bullish on it, see it as an economic opportunity, maybe simply an opportunity for them or members of their family to get a job on site. But we've got to make sure we're trained up uh, as opposed to training opportunities are offered once the projects are approved and, of course, would be the time crunch to be prepared to take on one of those jobs possibly. So some concerns out with the rush. I know that the minister says it's happening very quickly, the province wants to get in on the ground floor, but we have a tattered history with rushing projects around here. So, you know, the ability to rush it and get it right at the same time is a very tricky balancing act. So more information coming yesterday, but still not all the information we need. But I think one of the comforting things is that we are settled on a land lease agreement, which is one of the concerns that I had and I think many others have. So if you want to take that on today, there's a lot to it be nice to know just a bit more about the finances of all this. Now, the province has said no public monies, provincial public monies, will be going into the projects. There are absolutely pockets of money at the federal level, 
but still more to be understood about just what we gain from it. Now, there are people out there who are 100% in on this. One listener in particular sends me notes about this industry all the time and quite bullish on hydrogen. Okay, and if there is a market for it, fine. We cannot assume any risk here. We simply cannot. You know, we understand how forestry works and mining works and the fishery works or doesn't, and the oil and gas industry. We, we have experience with, this, with those industries. This, not so much, but some more info coming, and that's probably at least a good start. All right, the opposition parties are asking questions about public procurement. Now, we saw on the federal level yesterday that uh, International Trade Minister Mary Ng, she really should resign, you know, cozied up to a lady named Amanda Alvaro, and a couple of contracts went out the door to her company. It's just completely unacceptable. In this province, not to say that there's a direct overlap, but public procurement is something we have to get right. There has been far too many examples of simple sole source contracts being let. Now, it might not necessarily be the government's fault that when they put out an RFP, just one company replies, but it does give people cause or pause for some concerns. So we've seen it go all the way back to the air purifiers. There was all kinds of companies bid to provide those air purifiers for the classrooms across the province. There were many, most of the bids other than one were deemed ineligible for flaws in their bid. Okay. So that went out the door. And then you sole source for the replacement for Majesty's Penitentiary. And then sole source contract once again for the construction of the Cornerbrook Acute Care Facility. Then people will draw an analogy there because Health Hub Patient Engagement Solutions, which was the sole bidder on a five-year contract for that said healthcare facility, and it has ties with, again, John Risley and Brenda Paddock. So I don't know what the government does here. Do you just go back to the drawing board if there's only one company, rejig the RFP, the tender, and go back out to the market? I don't know. But the one that's most noticeable and gives people a lot of frustration is the 811 contract. You know, the other contracts, of course, they might not have widespread ramifications or ripple effects across the general population, but inside of 811, it just very well might. If the doctors, who sound very frustrated here, if this makes it more difficult to bring in new doctors or simply to keep the doctors we have because of the disparity in pay for 811 services versus an in-person appointment or a virtual care appointment and the caps thereon, that becomes a problem. You know, we've had a few conversations about 811, but if you call them, they simply tell you to go see a doctor. So we pay them 82 bucks, and you see the doctor, then we pay the doctor $37. The doctor's justifiably concerned with that amount of money between the two services. Now, the minister responsible, Minister Osborne, says he understands it's a very costly uh, program and wishes it could have been done differently, but the fact of the matter is it's a five-year contract, $31 million, and it may indeed have consequences outside of simply government sole sourcing contracts. If it impacts the numbers of doctors living in the province or willing to come to the province, that is a problem for all of us. So the 811 is getting a lot of attention. You want to talk about it? Let's go. Also, you know, I know there was five bidders for the expansion of the emergency room at the healthcare, uh, Health Sciences Center, but when the province said about $10 million in the most recent budget, the winning bid came in just over $40 million. Be nice to know what's going on there. And I don't think we talk enough about the public-private partnership. It is a big conversation. There's lots of complexities involved in. But as you've heard me say in the past, it would be great to have a breakdown that is really in layman's terms. Let me see exactly how the calculations were made. Here's how much it would cost 
if the government went with the traditional process versus going with the P3. I know full well it's going to make us look and feel a bit better, financially speaking, in the first half of the contract, but therein lies the rub. It's the back half of the contract where we end up on most every example you can find in a P3 ends up costing us more. So we should talk about that. If you want to take it on, we can do it. All right, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? I have a really sore throat today. That is not a good sign. Uh, what's this one? Oh, yeah, farms. I brought it up yesterday, but the issue regarding how few farms are in operation here in the province is extremely difficult to understand and quite troubling. I know farming is a very, very hard business to be in. Upfront costs are massive, but here's the context. In 2020, uh, pardon me, 2001, the province had 643 farms. In 2021, 344. We have dropped 50.7% of acres being farmed in the province. It's the worst scenario of any province in the country, even when compared to the rest of Atlantic Canada. So they say, based on a variety of factors, that it's easier to attract investment in Alberta, Saskatchewan, maybe not so much in Atlantic Canada. Why that is, I'm not really sure. But across Atlantic Canada, here's the numbers. Nova Scotia, for example, has uh, farming 28.4 fewer acres. New Brunswick, 28.3%. PEI at 21.8%. Oh, should throw this one out there. So PEI. The 1.66 million hectares of land proposal uh, involving wind energy, that's three times the size of PEI. It just popped into my head. Okay, what's all this stuff? So lots that we can talk about. The folks out in Gander who are quite worried, and the angst is real, about the removal of, of obstetric services from Gander, as recommended in the Health Accord, and to be permanently located in Grand Falls, Windsor. An interesting story in the media today, if you'd like to read some personal stories about what that means, there's actually been six women had to give birth in Gander because they couldn't make it to Grand Falls, Windsor in time. But without the appropriate uh, facilities in the hospital, of course, that becomes quite tricky. And notably, Gander is the only town in the province with any midwives. Remember when the province talked about uh, reintroducing midwives to the healthcare system? It hasn't moved beyond Gander. Is that actually factual? The utterance that I read in the news story says exactly that. But are there no midwives anywhere else outside of Gander? Anyway, a couple of quickies before we get to your call. Uh, for your information, there was six additional COVID-related deaths in the province's update of the hub yesterday. Hospitalization has stabilized. It's down to 11 people in the hospital, four in critical care. Our condolences to those who have passed and get well soon to those who are in. Some school notes. Here we go. There was rumors about an early dismissal, given the prevalence of respiratory illness in the schools, whether it be students, staff, administrators, and otherwise. It's not happening. There hasn't even been any discussion at the district level, so the last day of school before the holidays will indeed be next Wednesday, as planned. And don't look now, but potential job action at Memorial University. The talks between the university and the faculty association have broken off, and so there is a high possibility of job action, whether it be a lockout or a strike looming in the very near future. And I read some Twitter feeds offered by some uh, lecturers and professors at Memorial University, and they are say frustrated, but I think that's an understatement. All right. Uh, one piece of good news, which we'd like to do before we get to your calls. Bravo to the folks at Collision Clinic. You know, back in the Out of the Fog days, we would go in and cover this one and uh, talk about it on our show. The feel-good is palpable. I mean, for 19 straight years, they have given someone who just desperately needs a vehicle 
a vehicle that they repurpose, rebuild themselves between the collision clinic and auto, part net, auto parts network. So yesterday, the recipient was a lady named Cassie Ward of Mount Pearl. She's got a completely refurbished 2022 Kia Soul. Fantastic stuff. They also give her a first year of insurance coverage. She's got a new job in the ghouls that she loves. She's got a couple of children. I think Kaylee and Jack are their names. And so without transportation, it became extremely difficult, asking friends and family for rides or paying for expensive cabs and even just to shuttle her children around. So thank you to the folks at Collision Clinic and Auto Parts Network, and I'm sure Cassie Ward is over the moon. It's a Christmas gift she will never forget. We are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout, just like you're going to do during this break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Jeffrey. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How Hi are there. You doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, great. I'm uh, calling uh, regarding, I guess, just following up from, I was listening to, into a phone call you had yesterday with, uh, I guess, a man from Stephenville. On, I guess that was not so much in support of the immigration, but um, I'm calling to uh, more, much more in support of it today. Just, but just like pointing out a few things, especially in Stephenville, that uh, that I've been noticing. We, um, well, I'm I work for an organization where we, um, well, we had hired somebody earlier this year, and you know, usually when you hire for a position, you, you know, in this area you're hiring, you get quite a few applications. We received one. Um, and I know several other organizations and businesses in the area are experiencing the same. Um, you know, there's very low candidates, um, and I'm and I'm assuming that's because of the aging population. There's not a, as many people were you know looking for jobs and the jobs that like for instance for the one I posted was above twenty dollars an hour. So it was you know it was a you know a decent pay, um, a job that usually you know you'd have several applicants. We and like I said, we had one. Um, you you go through you drive through the main street in, in Stephenville, and all you see is help wanted signs, or the, or for instance the um, the mall the restaurant into the mall shopping mall is has been closed for several months now because they can't find employees to work for them to keep the restaurant open. So and then you go to these fast food restaurants in Stephenville, and I could. I would say probably most franchise fast food restaurants in Stephenville has mostly um, people from immigration working. The immigration conversation, uh, you know, nothing has changed inside the process other than the numbers over the last number of years between, say, the Harper and the Trudeau administrations, even though that's not the right term. In the country, there's a labor shortage. The death rate doubles the birth rate in this province. At some point, mathematically, even if you don't want to talk about the societal impact, if we don't have more people coming to this province, because you can't force anyone to have a baby, if we don't have people to come to backfill the jobs, at some point we have a tax base that would be reduced so far that we would be bemoaning the fact that we weren't aggressive on immigration. Yes, it's fine if people ask questions about you know, where they're being housed. Yes, it's fine if people ask questions about how quick they get to work. Those things are fair ball questions. They're real issues. But immigration in this province is going to be important. How can, you know, I still, I go back to the one stat all the time. The death rate doubles the birth rate. That is completely untenable, unmanageable in the long term. Yeah, no, and I completely agree. Like, you know, immigration is extremely important in many aspects of this province. And like, just for like, I, like instance, what I just mentioned, jobs to, to offer these services, to keep these businesses open and these people with, you know, with jobs. 
Absolutely. Uh, I know some people, look, the, the conversation gets pretty politically heated, and some people purposefully rile up their so-called political base on this front. But if you, you know, on the national front, for instance, there was an interesting piece I read not long ago about still funding and fueling the Canadian pension plan. If we have an aging population and the birth rates are way down, not only labor shortage impact, but even the coffers, not just for provincial taxes or what have you, or federal taxes, but things like pension plans, which we hold so dear. So there's got to be, I think, a bit more of a, an honest conversation about why immigration, what immigration looks like, and what they receive upon arrival, because it's different. There's four different silos in immigration. Not everyone's a refugee. Some people are on the path to permanent citizenship. Some people are actually recruited actively, like the most recent announcement by the federal government is for people to work in healthcare and construction, I think, were the two where they were uh, really focusing in on. So we, we do need to talk about it. And we can indeed ask questions about it. So if your question is about housing and health care and uh, security, fine. We should talk about those things. But to understand the economic requirement for immigration, on top of, you know, people will throw this in my face all the time, diversity is our greatest strength. Diversity is actually very good in my personal opinion. Absolutely. But, you know, the conversation is important. And I hope we can have it uh, maybe a little bit different than some of the conversations that I get involved in regarding immigration law. Yeah, and and even like you said, healthcare. Like here, you know, every well, I would say every second person, but it could be every person you talk to here in this area or all over all over Newfoundland, maybe all over Canada. There's um, we have no family doctors. We have no we have a lack of nurses and any healthcare professional, for that matter, we're lacking. And without immigration, we're 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 not going to have them. Probably not. I mean, that's some of the things that we, you know, is also part and parcel with the immigration conversation. Is some immigrants, like say for instance, if you came here to go to Memorial University and we've got concerns about the length of their visas and they have to have a job before they can be on the path of permanent citizenship, we're talking about keeping the best and the brightest. My goodness, if you're graduating from one in a graduate program, we sure hope you're staying. If you would come to the uh, country, say, for instance, a nurse recruited from India, we hope you stay. You're a doctor from Libya, we hope you stay. A doctor from Ukraine or Afghanistan or wherever you, because not every refugee is simply coming here hand out with nothing to offer. Many absolutely do have something to offer and the training and the education required to be a contributing uh, citizen to the province and the country. They just do. So it's not all the, all refugees with nothing to offer. It's not all completely skilled immigrants that have, can jump right into the workforce. There's a balance inside the conversation, and many immigrants, I think the numbers being used with the, uh, Ukrainians that have come, two-thirds of them are already working. That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. And, um, yeah, and it's like the town of Stephenville. They offer a great in- incentive program for any healthcare professional or any doctors that want to come here. They offer them bonuses. They offer them... Um, all different variety of services to come and work in the town of Stephenville as a practitioner, mm-hmm. right? And that's and that's people's tax dollars. But we we need that service. That's a very essential service that everyone in this town needs. That they do, Jeffrey. I'm glad you made time for the show. Would you like to offer anything else? Nope, that'll be it for me for today. Good to have you. All right, thanks, have a Jeffrey. Day now. All the best. Bye bye. Yeah, and, and again, when people are asking, you know, do we know who you are, where you came from, vet them for safety and security? Uh, absolutely. Is it fair to talk about how and where they're being housed because we have a housing crunch? 100% it is. You know, access to health care is also a very tricky conversation because, you know, not all newcomers 
are on the exact same level playing field when it comes to access to provincial and or federal services and supports. But anyway, you want to talk about it? Let's go. Let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, Bill. How are you doing? I'm good, sir. I'm good. I'm calling about the Uber issue. Okay. And, uh, share right. Number one, Patty, I mean, the issue, the reason we don't have taxis, I'm with Citywide Taxi, the reason we don't have taxis on the road, we don't have no drivers. We can't get people to drive them. And same with our school buses. We can't get people to drive our school buses. I mean, it's unbelievable. Nobody, nobody wants to work, and the city and the province is thinking about bringing in or hashing it over about bringing in Uber. I mean, Tim Horton's got no employees. If Dunkin' Donuts moves in there, are they going to get employees? You know, and this share ride and double Ds that is on Facebook, people are getting in cars that they haven't got a clue. Same as hitchhiking. Not a clue who they're getting in with. Yeah, that that double D thing, that's designated drivers, and I wouldn't use that at all. And I told my boys, don't you dare. No, sir. I mean, you know, you, you wouldn't hitchhike because you don't know who you're getting in with. And these drivers that are picking up people, they don't know who they're picking up either. Right. So a couple of things right. here. So, for instance, if Uber comes to town, unlike citywide, with a stand and the want to have X number of cars on the road, people would decide to be an Uber driver or not. So it wouldn't jeopardize Uber's bottom line necessarily if no one took them up on the potential offering, though them or Lyft or whoever. Is the reason people are not wanting to drive a cab? Well, I guess there's a variety of reasons, but is a lot of it to do with just how costly it is, whether it be the price of gas and insurance in particular? Again, no different than driving an Uber or delivering a pizza. You, you know, it, it, the price of gas is killing us. That's that's no joke. That is killing us. It's killing every industry. And, you know, it's killed everybody when you think about it because the, the higher the gas goes, fuel, diesel, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever, the higher that goes, the higher every industry got to put up their prices. And then it hits the consumer. You know, and again, the city is thinking about bringing in uh, Uber, share ride, whatever lift, and they're not realizing how much money they could lose. They're going to lose from the taxi industry because we pay the city. Well, not me personally anymore, but the companies pay the city an X amount of money every year to have our taxis stickered, licensed, uh, city decals put on them, inspected. Sir, I mean, why should uh, someone like Peter Gulliver? Why should he pay all that money out to the city of St. John's when he could take the stickers off, put a TX plate on it, and put the the liability insurance on it, the million to million? Well, why not just do that and save yourself a few thousand dollars a year? What's the TX plate? Well, that's what you got to have for a taxi. Oh, so you, you said take the plate off? I thought you said put a TX no, no, plate on. Sorry. You know, no, no, put it on, right? You know, what I mean, you can't. Ha- you got to taxi in the province of Newfoundland. You got to have a, a TXP seven eight nine type thing. Okay, you got to have that plate for it to be an authorized taxi. You know, but as the st- stickers for the decals, the city of St. John's, Peter pays an X amount of money every year to have these cars licensed for the city of St. John's, just like a sticker you got on your license plate. Yeah, okay, I understand. Uh, it's brutally difficult to get a cab. That much I know. I haven't used many cabs in the recent past, but a couple of weeks ago I did need a cab, and I waited an hour. Patty, if I didn't have connections, <laughs> when I go out, I have to wait. But, I mean, you know, again, the issue is I, I drive a taxi during the day. I'm, I'm the system manager with the company. I drive a taxi during the day. 
my taxi, Colourbine taxi, hasn't been on the road in the nighttime in about four months. That's, that's you know, that's a lot of money he's losing during the night as it is because we can't get no one to work. No one wants to work. I mean, you know, back back years ago when we taxi, you know, the guys need a pack of cigarettes, uh, a loaf of bread. You go out and you make your dollar. There is no more of that. There is no more. And and the gentleman that was on earlier about the foreign, the foreign people coming here, you know, we got a lot of foreign drivers working with us. If we didn't have those guys, half the time, sir, we wouldn't have a car at all on the road. Not at all. So what has to change then? Petty, I don't know. I don't know, Petty. I mean, you drive up Kenmount Road, Tufts Road, anywhere, downtown, you got these panhandlers out. I don't understand. You, you know yourself. You're from St. John's. I, again, I'm driving a taxi uh, a lot of years. I can point out who were the panhandlers. These kids, I don't even know who they are. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. what we're You know, homeless, uh, hungry. You know, there's jobs out there. There's opportunities. And some of these people are not stupid people. Not any person is stupid. But, I mean, you know, they could be working. They could be working at anything. But everything. You go to Tim Hortons again. It's closed down. The dining room is closed down in the evening. Nobody nobody to work in the dining room. I was in one in uh, uh, Galway there uh, a month back, and a poor young girl, I, I, was, I was like, she kept apologizing, apologizing. I told her it wasn't her fault. Three of them, three of them doing the drive-thru. I mean, come on, boy. Bill, why, yeah. how do you think it works in other cities? Because anyone who's done any amount of traveling, you know, Uber seems to be a go-to, but even at that, uh, even when you see and use Uber so frequently, like I do when I travel, I still see tons of cabs on the road. So how do you think they strike a balance elsewhere? Because for people here who are not in the taxi industry, they just want to be able to get a ride quicker than they are currently, you know, the wait times for to get a cab, whether it be citywide or otherwise. Well, a lot of other provinces, a lot of other cities don't have to pay the amount of insurance we got to. Okay. A lot of them. A lot of other cities don't have, again, the identification, city identification number. That's what they are on the doors and the back end of the cars. A lot of other cities don't have them. And a lot of other cities, too, provinces, don't have the price of fuel that we got. Yeah, and population base, obviously. More people, oh, more use, more exactly. need. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, again, like I said, if, if uh, Doug Donuts moves here and builds a place next to Tim Horns, Tim Horns going to lose business, maybe. Maybe not, but maybe, and because the city's not big enough, you know our, our you know base in Paradise CBS and Torbay, what have you, it's not big enough. And again, we had to put our prices up, like everything else, because everything else is going up. It's it's not right, and it's ever since, as far as I'm concerned, ever since the pandemic and pandemic, and they handed out those serbs, those checks. People just got completely lazy. They don't need to. You know, from my understanding, I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. People call in, well, I don't feel safe driving because of COVID. You know, we're good with that. Their money's extended. They're getting free money, and it's and it's not right. It's all over the place. It's the health care. I mean, you know, you got uh, students from here going to school, trying to be a nurse. My daughter, for one. And it's, you know, it's draining her dry. She's trying to work part-time as one. And they're bringing in nurses from other parts of the province, the other parts of Canada, sorry. And they got to pay them a lot more money, of course, uh, uh, boarding, feed them, uh, travel. 
you know, and, and instead of helping out our student nurses, our doctors. Yeah, and of course, any of those types of supports, they have a they have an expiry date as well. But the thought that you're offering about people unwilling to work, that in some corners, that was the worry uh, regarding pandemic supports. Now, I don't know if the federal government had any choice but to help businesses and help individuals because economic recovery, if we had to see much more in the way of bankruptcies and receivership for me, for individuals, for businesses, the recovery would have been taken forever, maybe even impossible. But the concept of being too lazy to go to work is a problem. We've got a productivity problem in Canada anyway, and we always have. And the numbers of people who are have left the job, uh, the labor participation ranks, I mean, the federal government brags about the unemployment rate. And there is more people working than ever. And, you know, But the fact is, 86% of the jobs in the last 18 months have been created by the public sector. That's not uh, creating jobs. That's just putting ads in the paper. So the need for people to need and want to go to work is massive. Now, Depending on who you are, where you are, what your political ideology is, you know, people say, well, we don't pay people enough, we don't treat them properly, there's no work-life balance. But if you don't go to work, I don't know how people think you're ever going to get any further ahead. You know, and not because my sons have anything to do with it, but they've worked since they were 15 years old. And even while they were going to university, they were working full-time. And one Nikki worked just about full-time and went to uh, university. So... We've got the productivity problem that we've got to figure out. And, you know, it's not to imply that everyone receiving a provincial or federal support is lazy. That's not really it. And there are some people who are receiving said uh, supports that absolutely could and should be working. How we can make that happen, that's the million-dollar question. Well, buddy, again, same with, you know, there is people that need need to be on social services. I got no problem with that. Absolutely. I'll help them out. I, I swear, man, I got no problem. But there's people out there that are on it that do not need to be on it. Like people work on one day. One day ever have a job in their whole life? One day? My goodness. Again, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the taxi industry alone over 30 years. I'm 56 years old. So, I mean, I worked at everything. Everything. If you didn't have a dollar, you had nothing. And again, about you said your boys will work since they were 15 years old. My children, same way, sir. Same way. My youngest daughter got a house 10 years now. She's, she's not even 30 yet. Yeah, you know? Well, I mean, if you wanted pocket money, you went and earned it. <laughs> That's about it. I don't mind taking care of the necessities of life. I mean, nope. I don't nope. charge them anything to live here, and they don't buy anything, and they don't, you know, we feed and clothe them because they're our children, but they know if they want yep. to be out and. Playing golf and whatever yeah. else that you know, like go get some, exactly. uh, go get a job. <laughs> exactly, and they exactly. did. And, yeah. and with the insurance and that, I mean, you know, it's close to ten thousand dollars to insure a taxi. Oh yeah, that's madness. You know I mean? Yeah, it is. Could you take it if if that was really a lot lower? Just just guys, uh, you know, again, foreign gentlemen, uh, women. We have ladies here as well. You know, I mean, they would put another taxi on. I mean, you know, and then we got more cars. We got more drivers. But right now, that's the issue. So, like, people out on Facebook, you know, dog and taxi drivers, companies, it's not our fault. We just got no one to work our cars. And that's the issue. They don't drive themselves. Uh, Good to have you on, Bill. Be safe out there, buddy. You too. Have a good Christmas. You too, pal. Bye-bye. You want me to take two before we go to the break, Dave? Okay, let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, just give me a moment here. I'm going to uh, all over. Okay. Uh, so, Patty, I heard the caller there just now uh, talk about uh, that uh, people just don't want to work. Um, I, I don't believe that is the case. 
in uh, most people's cases, uh, I believe. Like, um, just tell you a little bit of story. Uh, I've been back and forth to the province for a little bit, uh, working as construction heavy equipment operator from Alberta to Ontario to Saskatchewan to Quebec. And uh, what I find is that uh, I'm now back home, and the reason why I'll state the reason why I'm back home is because basically I've done hotel rentals. We started a job here in St. John's at the Portugal Cove uh, Road Holiday Inn site, and uh, we had a situation where uh, there was illegal workers on site, and uh, Border Services Agency came in and wiped them out. So therefore, the company lost the contract. And uh, when after the pandemic, uh, when everybody started opening back up again around August of 2020, uh, my number was given to the new contractor. So I started working with him, went up to Toronto, went everywhere. Um, the owner decided to uh, sell his company to the hotel owners and start up a new company. So when they laid off a lot of us back in March of, two, of this year, um, I questioned when I was going home, uh, how come we're not getting uh, hired with a new company? He said, well, he said, the Mexicans can do your job for $10 an hour less. And, I mean, uh, that that right there, I mean, I, I'm all for having people come in from bad countries and, and, and places that are war, uh, war-torn, but it has to be done legally. And there is a big problem, I know, up in Ontario with illegal workers and companies hiring these illegal workers, paying cash, they're not uh, contributing to the economy, and basically they're sending everything home to Mexico. And, I mean, now I find myself back home because I couldn't find another company to go with. And, uh, yeah, I, I just I feel like Newfoundland needs to catch up as well when it comes to wages, and especially, uh, like they say, there's opportunities out there, but I'm looking every single day for a new heavy equipment job, and I don't find many at all, so... Uh, anyway, that's just my little uh, two cents worth there on that. I appreciate you making time for the program. There's a lot to what you said there, whether it be companies who have moved yeah. so many of their jobs offshore or they've you know put, gone to co- countries where they can do it far less expensively to offer whatever service. Those are really problematic things. There's no doubt about it. Uh, good to have you on the program, and welcome home. Good luck yeah, in the new, new gig. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take <laughs> care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number 10, say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills, Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks so much for having me on, Patty. To the start of the show there, it seems like a, a good opportunity for me to call. There's a few questions, a few, few points of view that have been expressed that I think directly relate to my portfolio and some of the work that we're doing. Okay. It's, inside your portfolio, it's kind of sometimes hard to know where to start. <sighs> Describe, look, I know there's different silos of immigration paths here in the country. And there's different types of supports and expiry dates on different supports for different people, whether it be refugees, people on the path of permanent citizenship, and the variety of other uh, issues. First, what is afforded to the Ukrainian refugees that is unlike other federal programs? Because I think of the fast track of their ability to arrive in Canada, there's some supports they don't get. Tell us exactly what they get versus what other people coming from elsewhere get. Yeah, delighted to, because this is um, sort of a very topical conversation. A lot of people have said that the Ukrainians are actually getting a, a better or higher standard of supports than what otherwise would be afforded to uh, to federal government appointed or designated refugees. 
That is not the case, Patty. Um, everyone who is a refugee deserves fulsome support to be able to help them. Here's what Ukrainian refugees receive. Uh, they can apply for a, a entry visa, a travel visa to come and stay in Canada for up to three years. They can apply for a work permit, an open work permit that when they come to Canada, they are they can get a job, they can uh, seek employment legally, and get a job for up to three years for the term of their of their entry permit. That's it. There is no so the so the federal government does not designate Ukrainians as formal refugees within the federal government system. Uh, that's under the United, there's some things about the United Nations and other things and the High Commissioner on Refugees that's, uh, that, uh, that kind of create that decision by the federal government. But notwithstanding all of that, uh, a government of designated formal government-assisted refugee, a federal government-assisted refugee, does indeed get designated as a refugee by the federal government. Their travel to Canada is supported uh, they immediately become permanent residents uh, in a pathway to Canada to Canadian citizenship autom- uh, automatically. So, unlike the Ukrainian refugees, a government-assisted refugee automatically, upon arriving in at Pearson International Airport, which is where most uh, do make their initial arrival, they immediately become permanent residents. They immediately have a pathway to Canadian citizenship. They immediately receive federal government supports for housing and for basic needs, and they are supported by resettlement agencies such as our Association for New Canadians. That's the way it should be. Uh, that is, in my opinion, a very minimum of support uh, in order to make successful uh, integration into to Canadian life and to, to our society. That's the level of supports that are offered. But I really do want to say and say very clearly, Ukrainians do not get any of that. They are not permanent residents upon arrival. They have a three-year stay uh, allowance that allows them to stay here and a three-year work permit. Beyond that, we do not know exactly what the federal government will decide when it comes to Ukrainians. What's the price tag? Hopefully a specific number, the price tag for housing Ukrainians upon arrival, because we do know there's a housing crunch here. Many of them initially will stay in a hotel, some of them for possibly an extended stay in a hotel. How much has the province spent on hotel rooms for the newcomers? I won't be able to give you an exact number at this point in time, but what I can say to you, as I've said before, uh, there is a, a feeling or a general sense that Ukrainians are staying extended periods of time in temporary housing in hotels once they arrive in Newfoundland and Labrador. The facts don't bear that out. The Association for New Canadians manages this entire process, which is why I can't give you details right now, but I'll certainly get them to you. The average stay of a Ukrainian family, an individual or family, upon arrival in our province in temporary accommodations is uh, approximately 30 days. So while you see Ukrainians in a hotel and you make the assumption that, you know what, we had Ukrainians that came here in the spring of 2022, we had more Ukrainians that came in the fall, so it must be the same group of Ukrainians that have been there in that hotel for a very, very long time. That is not the case. There's a constant, constant uh, 
exchange of Ukrainians in the sense that they arrive, they come here, they settle in, they, they look for apartment. It takes, if you and I were to go out and try to find an apartment, uh, going to a brand new city, like say Montreal, we were to go to Montreal and we wanted to sort of figure out what we're going to do next, uh, it would probably take us at least 30 days to, to find a place to live and to settle down and find some work and all that sort of stuff. I would argue it would probably take you and I a little bit longer than 30 days. But the Ukrainians are coming here. They're taking a huge risk. They're walking into the unknown, except for the fact that they've got a relationship with our staff, and they're being very, very successful at it. And none of them, Patty, no one is staying in social housing. It's all its own. There's no Ukrainians. And in fact, the government-assisted refugees, such as Syrians and Afghans, they're not staying in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, social housing in most cases. So the Ukrainians are not taking up social housing. They're, they're out in the market. They're, they're finding apartments. And 50% of all uh, newcomers, especially when it comes to refugees, 50% are actually living and working outside of the Northeast Avalon. A lot of people think that this is a Northeast Avalon kind of concept or that it's only really applicable to the Northeast Avalon. 50% of all of our newcomers are living and working outside of the greater St. John's area. I mean, I see the stories from Labrador, for instance, about family reunification. So how is it working for them finding their own permanent housing, rental unit or to buy a home or what have you? Because I hear stories all the time. I actually have a friend who's kind of head-butting with the current landlord and so looking for a new apartment and having a devil of a time. We've seen stories where a lady out in Mount Pearl put her basement apartment in the, uh, in the offerings and there was 400 people called her within a couple of days. So how is it unfolding? How are they getting these apartments and how are they getting support to pay the rent? Because, you know, just getting a job uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you have all the capacity to cover what is indeed p- pretty extraordinary rent costs in this area in particular. Yeah, no, it is... And anyone who tries to suggest that there's not a housing issue that needs to be dealt with is not dealing with reality. There is a serious, significant housing issue. Um, I always say, just because it's true, it's not that I'm trying to diminish the issue, but it is not as significant or as severe here in our province as it is in other places. We have There are Ukrainians that are living in homeless shelters uh, in other parts of the country, and that is unacceptable. That's they are living in homeless shelters because as they arrive here uh, in Canada, there is no place. They do not have the supports that Newfoundland and Labrador, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, offer them in other places. And so their their ability to kind of get on their feet quickly is is very, very challenging. But here in our province, I'll tell you what, and I, and I say this from a very clear conscience, we have a housing issue. But i tell you what the housing issue is for Ukrainians, where they came from. Their housing issue is that an artillery shell just went through the side of their building. So when they left Ukraine, their housing issue was very, very different than what they're experiencing here. And in many cases, they're, they're taking what's available. They're, uh, they're doing what they need to do. Their circumstances was very, are very different here. They're very appreciative. They'll, um, and, and, and they'll just, they're, every Ukrainian that I've spoken to has have said to me, we're renting today, hoping to buy and build tomorrow. And what they said to me is that, Jerry, our housing issue back home was that an artillery shell went through the side of our building. 
Oh, I mean, I, I know. We're delighted to be here. You know, running for your very life is something that we can and should factor into these types of conversations. Uh, I see a name uh, also on my subject line here on my screen, Costanza Safal. Yes, Costanza. She's uh, you, Many people will know of Costanza. She's a, a, a newcomer, relative newcomer. She's been in our province for more than five years, but she's an entrepreneur. She's the executive director of TechNL. Oh, is this the, the Chilean woman? This is the Chilean okay. woman who's, who's now waiting for completion of her, her permanent residency application process. She, um, she went to Chile hoping that it's her family, some of her family are, 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 still, uh, are still in Chile. So she went to visit them before the holidays. And when she tried to come back home to Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, under the, federal, the Canadian federal rules, she could, wasn't allowed to board the plane in Chile because she did not have her permanent residency card. Now, she had been granted permanent residency before she left, but she did not have possession of a plastic, physical, permanent residency card uh, before she left to go to Chile. She went to Chile and then was banned from, from, from taking the plane back home uh, under federal rules because of that. So we have been trying to work that through. But the issue here, Patty, I think, is that uh, she was when we she first applied for her permanent residency, her pathway for for permanent residency. She applied in November of 2020 to my office, to our government. In 21 days, she was approved and nominated. The application went to Ottawa after a 21-day uh, service delivery process standard. She has been waiting, her and her family, Tomas and her children, have been, were waiting for over 20 months from that point forward to have Ottawa complete her, um, her permanent residency process, which left her really in a pickle. And that's kind of something worth talking about because I tell you why. You know, Canada has an amazing brand. People want to come here. People want to bring their skills. They want to bring their talents. They want to contribute. And they choose Canada over other countries. The issue here is that while we attract them and they, we've got this amazing brand, we do everything as a country to really suck the life out of that positivity because they're sitting there waiting for their permanent residency applications to be approved in Ottawa for months and years in the process. And Costanza is an example of that. Here in our province, Patty, we have 5,100 Costanzas. 5,100 people are on a list waiting in Ottawa for their applications to be processed. Or their applications are in Ottawa waiting to be processed. That's the equivalent, and they've been that way for months, if not years. Frustrating, frustrating, frustrating. Wanting to go to work, wanting to contribute. We have 5,100 Costanzas <laughs> waiting to come to Newfoundland and Labrador. That's the size of the town of Carboneer. I appreciate the time, Sworning Minister. Thank you. All the best to you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jerry Byrne, the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. You know, the federal government can talk all these big numbers of newcomers that they'd like to welcome to the country, but the process and the backlogs have got to be cleared up. It's fine to talk about uh, targeting skilled newcomers, what have you, but if the Costanza story extends to thousands and tens of thousands more like her, and the backlog, even for uh, the most fundamental of immigration pro processes, I mean, 
Can't do both at the same time. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Simeon, you're on the air. Good morning, Perry. Morning to you. Hello. Uh, I want to say hello to all your listeners. And uh, I, um, I, um, I was reluctant to call for the last few days, but I, I was being asked pressure to call you. So I'm, I'm calling you. It's got to do with the health care in Labrador and Happy Valley Goose Bay. And I was uh, informed uh, yesterday, I think, uh, that uh, one of our people was really sick and he was uh, sent to St. John's Health Science. And uh, the, the, the physicians there uh, uh, tracked the, uh, some, some kind of blockages on, on the heart of that person. But, but that's the concern I have with Health Labrador. It's, it's, it's really mind-boggling and it's been very disturbing me myself. I've, I've been on this show for quite a few times of healthcare Labrador and I've been complaining about it. So I'm, um, that's what I'm doing today again to, uh, to raise up some seriousness of, uh, of how, pe- how you know, people have been diagnosed in, uh, in Happy Valley, Goose Bay, especially the Goose Bay Hospital. I, I learned that, uh, and to say that it is a privilege for me myself to, 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 to experience that because I've been diagnosed for cancer and that was that was four years ago, and uh, and I've been complaining a lot on my uh, rib cage, and uh, you know it's very sad to say this on on on, on the radio. Uh, I went to Halifax uh, with my granddaughter, and uh, I was very sick over there, and I went to uh, emergency hospital, and I was kept in uh, in the hospital overnight, and and they, I found out that I have a liver air blockage in my liver, and that's. I've been complaining that for almost four years, and to fly out of province and to get an answer like that, it's 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 really mind-boggling because you know you you keep telling them where, where what's wrong with you, uh, with the physicians that examine me, and uh, you know to and say that uh, well it's your prostate, and I, I and I didn't disagree with them on that on that point because I had a. A surgery on my prostate not long ago, which I'm scheduled another one to have one soon, hopefully before I die. Uh, anyway, uh, it's very sad that I have to go through this ordeal like four years complaining about this ribcage pain and go through my back and I've been given a shot of morphine just and the pain goes away and uh, and uh, like I'm, I'm it's just like a routine life for me going back and forth in the uh, hospital. And to learn that I have a, a, a liver ball doc air is blocked, and I was going to have a surgery over there, but I didn't have time. But that was I had another responsibility, uh, responsibility that I had to attend, and I didn't really mind myself. But again, I was here in the hospital uh, two days ago with uh, the same pain in uh, in in Labrador City. I mean, excuse me, and uh, find out that I have a liver problem again. So it's, it's, you know, I have to wait like everybody else. And often we, we find ourselves as, you know, people in Labrador that we, uh, we, tend, uh, we, we tend to seek help, medical help in Goose Bay, and, we, we, and most likely we'll be sent home a couple of times all, all to go home with. And, that, and that's about it. And uh, there is no further, probably no further uh, examination to transpire transpire and uh, most likely people will end up in St. John's and come back with a body bag and that's it seems like it's this is our privilege as you know people go, go to the hospital health, health science 
and sometimes we don't come back alive, and we seems to be coming back on 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 a coffin, and that's and that's a privilege, and and, and that's most uh, Caucasian people will say it's a privilege, uh, like federal government and provincial government will will call us as as a privilege or uh, or race cards uh, uh, when we every time we speak, but we're humans, we're humans, we bleed like everybody else. I may have a brown, dark skin, but I'm still human. I can talk English. I can talk Inu, and uh, I can I can talk English, good English. I think, and uh, I think I'm a human. I don't think I'm not an alien, and and to be treated this way because I mean, look at David Summit. Uh, David Summit was was a disastrous for us, and promises were made to federal government, uh, federal government, and provincial government, and 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 left us to die there. And even though they transport our people up to Newtak and, and our people die, I mean, this is, I mean, this is, to me, it, it is a culture genocide. This is a genocide we're talking about here. And that's totally unacceptable. And uh, I certainly like to see some more action on, from our, on our, uh, you know, leadership and, and, uh, and, and be, uh, be a, uh, uh, be, uh, Came up with the Lila Avenue, which is the, she's the warrior of Labrador for, for us, and that's the only voice we have now today. And probably being mean, but my comments don't mean mean nothing. But uh, but certainly these are the facts that I'm raising, and they're undisputed. And that's totally unacceptable how we've been treated in, in Health Labrador. And I think uh, it's time that we, uh, the Eno leadership, take action because uh, I mean. I can go on and on and on the, the past history that we experienced. I mean, my, my uncle went five times in the clinic, and that fifth time, he didn't go home. He went out in a body bag. And that's, to me, that's not a privilege. And that's, to me, they call it, it's a privilege. And, and that's totally unacceptable. Premier is a doctor. He should know better. If he was trained to be a doctor, then he should know the, the problems that we're experiencing in Labrador when people are sick, because you, some people, I mean, we have a problem, a huge problem, healthcare in Labrador. Medivacs, the transportation is not being considered because we're living up in North Coast. Maybe it's time that they do something about the, the North Coast. If I was the band chief or a grand chief, I'll pull up, uh, I, I mean, I would have shut down Moscow Falls and Boise Bay until I see the runways and, and see the, uh, the, the service improve. Then I can allow them back to operate. But, if, but, but I'm not a leader, but it's coming. It's going to happen. It's coming and it's going to happen. Simeon, would the healthcare yeah. system be any different for indigenous peoples versus non-indigenous people who live in Labrador, or is it all the same I, circumstances? I mean, I think it's it's very much different because it, it's it's pretty much different. People like uh, non-indigenous people will get on the flight, Goose Bay or St. John's right away. When you are Eno, you got to wait four months, three months, one year, five years to get get to get to get a treatment, but. If you're not white, I mean, good luck. I'm sorry, man. It ain't going to happen right away. They're going to bring your body back on, on, on the flight. And that's, and that's what's happening. You're going to bring you on the body bag on your flight. Or if you get lucky, you get a surgery. Those are the two things you're going to get. If you get lucky, you get a surgery, you get Medicare. If you don't, if you're Inu, then don't be hopeful. I certainly am not hopeful. I, I don't know when I'm going to drop <clears throat> I, uh, well, hopefully you get the care you need. Uh, I wonder what the changes might look like when all four regional health authorities are amalgamated into one, whether that makes things better 
or worse, whether we're talking about Central, the West Coast, Northern Peninsula, or Labrador. I appreciate the time, Simeon. Take care. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number two. Sheila Guy Murphy, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I just wanted to give a shout-out to the St. John's Firefighters toy drive through that's happening this Sunday uh, at Kent's Pond Fire Station on Portugal Cove Road. Sunday between December 18th, um, uh, December 18th from uh, 2 to 5. And uh, the firefighters will be there. The Salvation Army will be there to collect toys and um, all, all in conjunction with the Happy Tree and making sure that uh, we can brighten the child's Christmas, for Chris, uh, child's Christmas with a gift. And if I remember correctly, it was a roaring success last year. It really was, uh, and I, I think part of that was so many people came out with their uh, their uh, kids and grandkids to drive through, you know, and see the firemen and wave and uh, be a, an actual part of it. You don't have to get out of your car. You come through one end. A fi- wonderful firefighter will take the gift, open your trunk if you even want to do that, and the kids get to, you know, see the firemen, see a truck there, and then just drive right on through the other side. And uh, I'm... Just putting it out there this morning, as people are going through their last-minute shopping, to um, if you're out and about and um, you have uh, the inclination and the wherewithal, and I know everybody is asking, Patty, and it's a it's a hard ask every time you um, you turn around. Someone is asking to help, help, help. But Newfoundlanders have always come through, and they've always helped, and I'm expecting them to do the same thing this year. So, and if you say, oh, gosh, I haven't got a gift. Well, pick up a gift card. That's, uh, you know, that's an easy thing to do. And uh, come on and, and uh, help out the, uh, the happy tree, the firefighters doing this. Now, this is 30 years uh, collecting these toys and um, would love to see you all out there. Just based on what you saw last year, Sheila, is there a certain age group that got more or less than others? Because when people think Christmas toys, they maybe aim their sights on the, the 5 to 12-year-olds and those types of toys. When sometimes in the toy drives I've been involved with, sometimes there's so little in the way for something for a teenager, for instance. And there are also kids mm-hmm. that are going to need a gift this year. Uh, very, very, very true. Um, it's uh, I won't say easy. It is generous and kind to pick up a gift for a small child. Sure. Uh, because a small child, with the, the, the bright colors and, and that kind of thing, and you go, oh, that's an easy do. Um, we seldom think about the 14, 15-year-olds. We think, ah, they're too big. They, you know, Santa Claus is not in their head. But, you know, it's it's been my experience now with 30 years of doing this that it's the young people of that age, the 12 to the 16-year-olds, that are not getting um, the gift of a coupon from, uh, for uh, a coffee at Tim Hortons can make a big deal when they're going to school and can get their own, you know, um, soda or whatever with their pals. And, um, you know, uh, they just as much as anybody else wants to see something under that tree at Christmas time. And they might uh, have a brave face on too big for that, but they really want it. And uh, they are the ones that are really we are pushing to uh, get toys and gifts for and presents. And, uh, you know, think outside the box. Literally, it doesn't have to be something in a box. It can be, uh, you know, a, 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 sport, a, a T-shirt with a, a sports logo on it, uh, you know, um, uh, hockey cards, anything. You know, and think outside a game in a box. Sounds great. Give the folks the details, the day and the time once more. Okay, it's uh, this Sunday coming. 
at the Kent's Pond Fire Station, Portugal Cove Road, uh, Sunday, December 18th, 2 to 5, and um, the firefighters will be there and the Salvation Army will be there. We blocked that truck last year, and I'm hoping to do it again this year. Fingers crossed. Thanks for this, Sheila. Good luck. Uh, Petty, thank you so much for all you do. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Sheila Guy Murphy, the Firefighters Toy Drive, this Sunday, 2 to 5, Kent's Pond Fire Hall. They're on the Cove Road. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there to talk about Eastern Health. What about it? We'll find out. Back, let's go. Line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I just want to, uh, I'm calling actually now for a friend of mine. Uh, she works for Eastern Health, and uh, she's had uh, a lot of a lot of uh, things go on, go on with her over the years with uh, loss and whatever. But anyway, uh, she had one incident back in June with a um, with a manager that actually uh, took her job from her basically because uh, she had a mental health and addiction problem, and she was taken anti-anxiety medication, and uh, anyway, long story short, that uh, manager actually got rid of her, and she ended up working with another manager that um, seemed like she wasn't wasn't getting getting along with, uh, with the manager and the supervisor that was there, and um, she was put on a probation for three weeks. She did the probation for three weeks and did everything that she was supposed to do. And yesterday she found out that they're removing her from her position. I just want to like talk about the things that happen. Like, I don't think people realize exactly what Eastern Health is doing to their employees. I'm watching her and she's suffering. Okay, so is there any question about her ability to do her job? Absolutely nothing. Doesn't she have unionized representation? Absolutely. And what's the union saying or doing? Um, well, as luck would have it, yesterday she actually had a call. She is waiting today. That's why uh, she's not with me today. Uh, we're normally together all the time. She's not with me today because... Uh, She's waiting for a phone call for another position, but uh, the job that she was in, she really, really enjoyed, but they just removed her from her position, and she's, she actually believes that it was harassment because, like I said, she did everything she was supposed to do for this position. Uh, she's had letters of recommendation from previous managers uh, saying that she was outstanding in her position. But now all of a sudden, these two managers are just treating her like she's she's nothing. And the first manager, I'm not going to say any names, but the first manager uh, seems like when she found out she had this mental health and addiction problem, she just basically threw her under the bus. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, without knowing the circumstances or what kind of role this person performs in healthcare or with Eastern Health and what the union can or should be doing about it, it's hard for me to say much about the circumstance, but regardless of who your employer is, the government or otherwise, the stories I hear about the type of treatment people are putting up with and or could no longer put up with and quit or just look for another job is really quite something. You would always think that it's in the employer's best interest to treat their employees properly. One of the most expensive things for an employer is training costs. 
So if you have to re... The connection's awful. Um, I don't know if we... I, I, the connection is gone here, caller, so I don't know if we can continue with this scratch that I hear. Would you like to say anything else? Uh, I'm still listening. Okay, because uh, in my ears, it's really... It's like electricity. Uh, okay, so the training costs for employers and disgruntled employees are also less productive. So I'd never understand why an employer wouldn't do all they can to provide a safe, dignified, reasonable place for people to work. Have a reasonable relationship with their employees because the end result is clear every single time. They're happier, they work harder, they're more productive, you're more profitable. Seems like a win-win for me. Absolutely. And I see her, she's very... Um She's a very polite and pleasant person. She's a joy to be around. She's funny. And uh, like I said, she's had a lot of loss. You would never know that. If you met her first off, you would never know what she's after been through over the last 10 years. But anyway, that's the side point. She's, I'm really concerned because she's in a position where she loves what she does. She loves the people that she works with. She enjoys her job. But it seems like to me she's being ridiculed and harassed uh, because she has this mental health and addiction problem. Which can be managed, you know. That's, that's uh, oh, a- Absolutely. And she's had, uh, she's had a doctor clear her. She's had uh, different people with Eastern Health have cleared her to go back to work. But uh, it seems like once they find out about that, that's it, you're... You're done, but I'm just I'm just really concerned for her because I know she's really upset. She's upset today, um, I, like right before Christmas. They called her in and basic, and they couldn't. The sad part about it is what I don't understand, and that's why I'm making the phone call today, is because uh, they had a meeting, and apparently they couldn't give no reason as to why they were trying to move her out of her position yesterday. Now she's probably going to kill me when she finds out that I'm on the line this morning but you know something she's a really good friend and i'm going to uh do whatever i can to help her out but they couldn't uh they couldn't even give her any reason as to why they were doing this yesterday so it just really upsets me knowing that um you know eastern health we depend on these guys to to give us our um our care that we're looking for but still they're treating their there are employees like this. It just doesn't make sense. I appreciate the time. Hopefully your friend isn't too upset. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. You know, just think about it yourself. Everyone's had a job where they just didn't get along with their management and or it was just a toxic place to work. And consequently, you get up every morning not wanting to go to work. And then even when you arrive at work, you're probably not digging in like you could and should. And the productivity is down. And at the end of the day, that hurts the employer just as much as it hurts the employee. So I've never really understand why anybody would be, uh, as a responsible manager or an executive or of the president or the CEO of a company, first things first, if the employees feel like they're welcomed and they're a big part of the operation as opposed to just the underlings or the peasants, they work harder. And what's the end result of working harder? More effective, more productive, more profitable. Seems like a... Seems like a reasonable approach to me. All right, let's go line number one. Good morning, Leslie Ann Corrigan. You're on the air. Hi, Leslie Ann, line number one. Hello, how are you? Doing very well, thanks. How about you? I'm good, Patty. How's everything going? All ready for Santa? 
Ready for Santa? Not much for me to do these days with the boys at their age. So, And we've reined in our Christmas spending like I imagine many people have. But the short answer, yeah, I'm pretty much ready, I guess. How about you? Good for you. We're finally ready down at Wooden Walls Distilling as well. And what is exactly is going on there? Because I've never heard of the operation. Really? Well, uh, we are St. John's first and only craft distillery. So um, we've been trying to get this in operation now for several years um, and in between the jigs and the reels with city permits and the extensive fire codes and and the covid and all of that um, it's been a long process but we're finally ready to open our doors we've been distilling spirits now for the past several weeks we've got four vodkas available and a gin and our tasting room is opening this weekend uh, there's some other locally made uh, spirits. Uh, how do they operate differently than what you folks are doing then? So we are a grain-to-glass operation. What I mean by that is we bring the grain in from Atlantic Canada. So we try to keep everything as local as possible. But obviously the weather in Newfoundland is not as conducive to growing grain. Um, but they're making strides there as well. They've made strides in Atlantic Canada. So we bring the grain in and um, we start the process right from that and we bottle it ourselves on premise, and we um, sell it right from our bond shop in the front of our uh, operation as well as in our bar. And, of course, we're going to be bringing some cases and bottles and spirits to the NLC very soon. Do you have uh, shelf space organized with the NLC? Uh, Yes, yep, we're ready to go. We've got some vodka being released uh, this week, and our Walsh's Welch Gin will be on the shelves um, very soon as well. We're putting the SKU stickers on them as we speak. So what does it look like when I walk in the door at Wooden Walls? It's a beautiful space, I must say. Um, it's uh, We've had Carvel and Helm come help us do some uh, beautiful design work. The bar itself is the showpiece. It's If you stretch it out, it's uh, kind of designed, I don't know if anyone else is familiar with us, our logo is sort of the sails of a ship, so our bar design mimics that, and there are pods for our cocktail makers, our mixologists to get in, and um, and they can kind of tell people and interact with our customers, tell them about our products, tell them about what we're making back in the distillery. Um, so you can gather around. It's a perfect place to go get a cocktail. I always kind of liken it to fine dining, but for cocktails. And we have a full menu of beautiful cocktails as well as temperance cocktails. So if you don't want to uh, take part in this drinking spirits, you can still enjoy a beautiful drink. Um, we've got uh, the windows overlooking the distillery, so you can see how it all works. And all of our staff is trained and ready to tell you all about what we're doing there and how we're bringing all these other craft producers together in our space and in other programming that we're offering. And where are you located? We're at 140 Harbor Drive, so right next to Gay Seed. If you drive down Harbor Drive, you'll see our big, beautiful orange mural with wooden walls distilling, and you can't miss it. We're in the Templeton Building, so it's a historic building, the best neighborhood in St. John's, I think, because we're surrounded by other great restaurants and and, uh, and tourism businesses. We're just really excited to be able to add to that. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Leslie Ann. Nice to talk with you. Thank you. you. Thanks, Patty, so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. There you go. All right. Uh, see what's happening on Twitter. We're a VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But my favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout, just like you're going to do during this break. Don't go away. 
Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. So inside the world regarding healthcare delivery, we know about the provincial jurisdiction and responsibility. But there's a real standoff right now between the federal health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, and the country's premiers. And a lot of contradiction about who said what or who knew what when, when they last met. That's so that was healthcare ministers right across the country and the federal minister. So Minister Duclos says it's now in the premier's corner. It's up for them to uh, arrive at some sort of breaking this impasse. But then here comes the contradictions. He says they had a, a quiet private agreement with the premiers about how to proceed with an increase in health care funding. But the Manitoba premier, Heather Stephenson, she's the chair of the Council of Federation, says not only are the comments inaccurate, she goes on to say the Canada health transfer wasn't even on the agenda when the health ministers met last month. So there's one contradiction. Then it's how they do the math about just how much the federal government covers for health care spending provincially. The premiers say that the federal government transfer adds up to about 22% of their overall health care spend in the various provinces. They're asking for a 22% increase, so that means going from uh, an increase of $28 billion to the $45.2 billion in health care transfer starting this year. The minister federally says that the spend is already about 35% versus the 22% that the premiers say. So how they're calculating the money, whether or not it was actually discussed, whether or not it was on the agenda, whether or not we're having federal ministers once again play games with this kind of stuff, is getting pretty tiring. I know that the federal government is probably loath to get too deep into health care because it is probably the trickiest portfolio to manage for the provinces. So when they arrive at the potential for what the premiers will call a 35% increase, then all of a sudden the onus on them to be providing a bit more national guidance and national conversation about health care because the system as it's currently structured is not working the way it was intended to. So the standoff is real, but who's actually telling the, uh, the proper story here, the accurate story? And what's the difference between the calculations? Because apparently some of it has to do with, with taxes when we, the federal government says, well, the contribution is already around 35%. There's a long way between 22% and 35% uh, as per the two differing, differing of opinions here. So anyway, I just thought that story is getting a bit frustrating because we all know, and again, it's not just about spending money on health care. If it was, we'd be in much better shape than we currently are because right now the amount of money spent is not commensurate with the positive health care outcomes that we need, nor is it commensurate with the wait times, nor is it commensurate with the number of health care professionals, even though that one continues to confuse me to no end. We're quickly told that there are more doctors, for instance, living and working in the province than ever before in the province's history. And as the population hasn't exploded, so with some, say, 525,000 people here and the numbers of people without a doctor, and then contrast that with the, the story we're told about, well, there's more doctors than ever. What do you want me to do? What we don't understand inside those numbers of doctors is exactly what disciplines they might be practicing, whether or not they have a full patient roster that they see, whether or not they're working part-time, whether or not some of their time is consumed with research, uh, pure academia, as opposed to seeing patients. And I know that's all important inside the world of being a physician, but we don't really know exactly who and where those doctors are and what they're doing. So that one is always going to confuse me. Moving off to this story, and unfortunately... Every day since we heard the story about a couple that was together for decades being separated upon entering long-term care, the stories are piling up. 
and some of them, like I imagine would be the case, it's not just that it's actually happened to the family, but it's the distinct worry that it will happen to the family. And the story that I think has really provoked a lot of the feedback I'm getting via email is the story of Jim and Teresa Wolfrey. Been together for 67 years, but for the last year they've been separated. They have different medical care needs, one of them in a home at St. John's, one in Paradise, and they're just lucky that they've got children and grandchildren that are able to bring Jim to visit Teresa, his beloved Teresa, virtually every day. But not everyone has that luxury, and nor is that ideal. So the province will talk about the fact that they understand the issue and they're going to try to work towards some sort of solution. They hesitate and talk about legislation uh, being changed, just like they did in the province of Nova Scotia to avoid this in the future, because Minister Osborne says, no sense uh, legislating something that we can't deliver on. But these stories, I'll, I'll just take a round number of guests that I've got a dozen very similar stories. Half of them are people worried about what's coming for their parents. The other half, it's already happened. And this, you know full well, even if you've seen it in your own family, whether it be nan or papa or mom or dad has passed and what that's meant for their overall mental well-being, emotional well-being, physical well-being for the one left behind, and whether or not they're simply separated in a long-term care facility, you know full well it must be absolutely devastating. Imagine 67 years together, and now all of a sudden you have to rely on your children or grandchildren to give you a spin to go visit your wife. So that story is getting a lot of traction. And if you want to share yours, whether or not that's actually happening to your family today and or you fear it's going to happen in the very near future because one of your parents might not be doing so well, might be a little bit more ill than the other. And the thought is, well, when they go to move out of their own home because they're going to need care, then what's the likelihood of them being separated? Even though we know, even though we know for sure, based on the work of, say, Suzanne Brake, uh, the former seniors advocate, Susan Walsh, the current one, the recommendations inside the health court, it's the hope and the want to be able to have more and more seniors to age in place, to have the supports, whether it be primary caregiving by a family member that we pay properly, whether it be with the required home care supports from the provincial government, whatever it takes, because institutionalizing seniors for some might be necessary because they have a certain level of need that cannot be accommodated at home, but for many others, there's got to be a way and a cost savings and better for their health and welfare and their dignity and their happiness to be able to stay at home. So those are two big ones if you want to take them out. Let's go. Let's go to line number three. Leonard, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, I guess the Grinch is alive and well over at uh, Newfoundland Light and Power. Uh, just uh, talked to a few friends and uh, talking about uh, increase in the light bill. It went up from last month, uh, or we'll say October to partial November, to November to December, about 120% markup. So I don't know if you had any callers call in with the same concerns about, uh, I mean, go through, uh, go, go from $130 to uh, $270. So uh, I'm glad that $500 check came in from the provincial government. Uh, just in time to pay them follows, right? For having a bit of lights on and uh, and uh, you know what I mean. What's I the difference? Know. What was the difference in your kilowatt usage? Difference? I don't have the bill in front of me. I wouldn't be able to tell you, but you know what I mean. I'm thinking. Well, you're looking at a 120 percent increase. So uh, you know I mean, I, I can't really tell tell you for sure how many extra kilowatts we burn, right? But to have a few lights on, Patty, and. Uh, 
You know, I mean, it needs heat on with a few cold days that we had, but uh, see 120% markup. That's pretty uh, extreme, if you ask me. Well, sure it is. And nor do I uh, usually understand exactly what constitutes such an increase in your bill because the price we're paying per kilowatt hour has not changed to the point no. where you see 120% increase in your bill. Then there's people who say, geez, I was sure I was gone away for uh, a month and I came back and my bill was huge and I don't even have anything on. And, of course, some of that has to do with what it takes to actually reheat a place uh, once it goes as cold as some people leave their place. So yeah. I don't know. Did, when Newfoundland, when you spoke to Newfoundland Power, what did they tell you? I did speak to them. I want to speak with you guys first just to see if you had any feedback from uh, any other listeners, right? Just to see, because uh, a few people that we talked to said they, they had the same uh, increase, right? So uh, I, I think there was a, what are they going to tell me if I called her, right? They'll say, boy, well, you had your heat on more than you did uh, the previous month, okay? But do actually laving your lights on, like you mean, you decorate your house for get into the Christmas spirit, is that... Uh, is that would be that a major increase because of that? I wonder. Well, Good certainly, day. yeah. Well, I mean, my December bill is always higher than other months simply because of uh, the decorations and the lights. Now, it's not a huge spike to the tune of one hundred and twenty percent increase, but yeah. I do expect to pay more for December's power than I did say, for instance, in November. Add into it getting a bit colder, a bit windier, like it's been here in the recent past, and the damp cold, a bit more heat on in the house, and the lights on. So, yeah, I'm expecting a, a minor increase, but certainly nothing to the magnitude that you're discussing. Yeah, but we shouldn't be having to pay, Patty, for uh, enjoying a little bit of Christmas spirit. You know what I mean? They should give uh, uh, consumers a break when it comes to even December. You know what I mean? Give some kind of discount and that so people could have their lights on. You know what I mean? That's what I, I think they should look at. You know what I mean? Instead of whacking that big... Uh, increase on us, you know what I mean? Well, they're a private sector company, of course, so I don't anticipate uh, anything like that. I'll, I'll add to it, because I haven't really thought of it before, but if they don't get the money there, they'll get it somewhere else. So they're not going to go without. That much we yep. know to be true. Uh, Leonard, give them a shout, though, because some people have some success. Even if you just get an explanation that might make it a bit more understandable, that's better than the frustration you're feeling now. So if you call them and there's anything interesting to report, let me know. Yeah, Pat, I, I find, like... Uh, you uh, try to move a step forward, but it's always you're moving two steps backward because uh, as soon as you get a little bit of extra money, you know what I mean? And God knows when you're working, you're paying gas, and you get a mortgage and insurance and that, that money basically dissipates pretty quick, Patty. That $500 is not much to get people on, on the on the, you know what I mean, on the, you know I mean, trying to work and try to make an honest living, you know what I mean? They seriously got to look at some other uh, increases as well, or decreases in some fees as well. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I don't know what it's going to take, and plus we haven't even explored what it might be looking like, whether or not they can ever get Muscat on, and what that's going to mean for my bills. We don't even know if it's ever going to work, which is, drives me nuts. Uh, Leonard, let me know what happens. Okay, my friend. Have a Merry Christmas, my friend. Same to you. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, time for you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Well, come January 12th, there's going to be an extremely important program going by the wayside. And it was a justice program operated by the Canadian Mental Health Association, Newfoundland and Labrador chapter. So the interim CEO is a lady named Katharina Kennedy. She says that that justice program just does not fit the core mandate at the association and they find it in deficit year over year. She says there's organizations out there that can pick up the slack on this front, even though I'm not so sure I've been able to find anybody that's going to be able to mimic this program. And what it did is dealing with 
uh, former inmates at Her Majesty's Penitentiary with the case managers, the minute they walk out the door, they're met at the gate. And so they're dealing with a mental health problem and or addictions problems. They've had some great successes. From uh, This all came and began uh, based on the 2008 report called The Decades of Darkness. 112 members have been served over the 10-year course of this program. 112 members, 67% of whom have not reoffended or be re- been reincarcerated. We know the lack of supports for mental health and addictions while you're inside the walls of the prisons, but when you get released. But the big public safety issue here is that it's the recidivism, is whether or not upon release you're able to get a case manager, and we've heard what the Auditor General's report said last week regarding the lack of oversight and even checking on, on court mandates upon release, curfew checks and otherwise. Now this program going away is going to be a big problem. Even if your thoughts, you know, do, do the crime, do the time, I get it. But once they get out, and they all will get out, it's to ensure we do the best we can to make sure they don't have, they don't immediately slip back into the same old rot, the same old life, and, and commit another crime. So George Skinner used to be the executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association, now the provincial chapter, from 2009 to 2015. He says not only does he believe that this program is in the mandate of the Canadian Mental Health Association, but he goes on to say it was the envy of chapters like his, or like the provincial chapter, countrywide. And he says deficits can be addressed, but this program going away on January the 12th means that for many of these former inmates, the supports that can help keep them on the straight and narrow, help keep the public safe, help keep them out of prison, is going to be gone. And that impacts not only those people, but the rest of us as well. Let's go to line number one. Don, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. How you doing today? Not bad, you. Uh, referring to your last caller, <laughs> do you know anybody got a uh, gas wheelchair I could buy? No. No. I'm an electric wheelchair. I don't get no break on my power bill. That's the only mean of transportation I have. And him worried about Christmas lights. Right. Yeah, well, why can't uh, Newfoundland Light and Power give me a little break on a... And that's all they can use. I can't use crutches. I can't use a walker. I'm stuck in this wheelchair. It's an electric one. But I cannot get a break from them. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think anyone gets a break. No, uh, but you think that's the ones would get a break? A poor man on on a low income, stuck in an electric wheelchair all his life, and can't get a break. But yet they'll give General Motors ten thousand dollars, or somebody else to put in charging stations. Mm-hmm. So that's my complaint on that one. Okay, I'm not worried about Christmas lights. <laughs> Now, recycling here in Newfoundland and Labrador, do we have any? Yes. Because when when I moved here, we used to have blue bags and white bags. Correct? Uh, okay. Um, yes, there's recycling. Yeah. But now, New Orleans took over this complex. No more blue bags. Everything goes in the white bags. People... It's steam, though. Okay, so someone else dictates whether or not you can use a blue or a white bag? No. The, the owner-operator said, no, 
marble bags or white bags. So who picks up the garbage from wherever it is that you live? Well, I live in Steamville. Tom Rose is the mayor. Right. But they, they make their own decisions on, on this. So uh, just so I understand, there's no more curbside recycling in Stephenville? No. Nope. Period. Well, I called the office myself. They said, no, nope. it's all got to go in the white base. First I heard of it. So that's why I was worried about the tire plant going to St. John's. Is that still go ahead? Yeah, well, there was a contract let for, just so people uh, know what we're talking about, I think what you're getting at, is that forever and a day, up until this past May, I believe it was, or April, when the province announced that there will indeed be a recycling company coming to town who's going to deal with tires. We had been sending them away, costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to get someone to take our tires. So now this company, I believe they're from Halifax, they're C&D Recycling, they're going to be repurposing tire, tires here for the first time ever in the province. So that's a good thing. And your worry is that they chose this neck of the woods to set up shop? I think it's on no, paradise. If my I worry was we had a beautiful recycling shop here in Stephenville, which we did. Now, the government set up training for us. The government paid so much for our wages to work there. And all of a sudden, the guy... Guy, was politician friend, took off, and it was shut down. And I called myself personally, and because my lights were shut off the morning, I went to open the plant. I owed eight hundred thousand dollars. Who paid that? Must be the taxpayer. I suppose, but what? Uh, just so I'm clear, what does that have to do with the new tire recycling group coming? Well, what it has to do with tire recycling? If you don't have no good government oversight on this operation. Same thing is going to be the same failure as was here in Stephenville. Spent millions of dollars cleaning up this place, and I know we did. So I worked there. Yeah, but these guys are coming to town and building their own facility, and they're going to mechanically shred scrap tires. I saw a little video when they first made the announcement. And so they're going to do all that repurposing as a private operation. I don't remember or recall any government money, but of course there were some 500,000 tires uh, are recycled somewhere that came from this province, and now we're going to be able to do the work here, which I thought was a good thing, because we've been well, sending it, it to Quebec. a good thing if the government is telling you the truth. Uh, okay. It'd be a great thing, but the government lied about this recycling plant up here on the West Coast. What recycling was uh, gone on in the, inside that plant? My God, we used to do uh, 7,000 tires a day. We had two shifts. And when was this? This was back about eight, nine years ago. It was called Enviro Tire. I can't even find it no more on a, on a, on a website. Yeah, and okay. it was here. Everybody knows it was here because the government had to clean it up. They left tires on the ramp. They left tires in the building. All the crumb and everything was supposed to go to Nova Scotia. And the only time it went to Nova Scotia one trailer road. I won't forget it because I worked there. When the, when the guys come in from St. John's, then they loaded the trailer. Then it was overweight because they didn't listen. Then the Chinese were going to buy it and sell it to the mill here in Steveville and, and put some pellets in there. So you must have heard about that. 
Yeah, maybe. I'm, I think since 2010, we've been sending them away. That's all really pops to mind at this moment, to be honest. Yeah, 2010. Well, we had a plan here. I was working beautifully. Yes, I know. I remember you said that, yeah. Yeah. No problems with it. Problem with the owner. <laughs> and who owned it? Well, you want me to give the name over the year? I guess there's probably public record who owned the company, so... Well, Charlie Plate was the owner. Okay. Don, I'm, I'm off to the news. I'll give you a chance to have the last word. Go ahead. No, that, that that's it. That's my last word. Before they go in there and the government says they're not putting no money in there, I'd like somebody to fact-check that. That's okay. all I want to know, that not going to cost us money again that it cost us. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. How are we doing out there, David? Got any calls to come back to? If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, get in the queue to talk about whatever you want to talk about, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just read an email 30 seconds ago that said, can you talk about the rumor that schools are going to close as early as tomorrow versus what is the schedule closing for next Wednesday to be the last day of classes until the new year? Well, the district has said quite clearly that rumor is not true. School will be going on until next Wednesday as uh, scheduled. There was no discussions at the district level to even talk about early dismissal, even though we all see and hear the numbers about the absentee rate amongst not only students, but teachers as well. And if the families that connect with me on that front, uh, the email yesterday said that her grade 6 child, class of, I think it's 27, had 12 in class yesterday. Unbelievable, really. But no early dismissal coming. And this, you know, every now and then when we talk about whether it be the Crown Lands issue or separated upon entry into long-term care, and yes, this story about home inspections, I hear in quick order uh, tons of stories that are very similar. So in this province, there's no oversight body for home inspections. Now, businesses are obliged to comply with the Consumer Protection and Business Practices Act, but we don't have licensed home inspectors. Anyone can start a business tomorrow uh, doing home inspections. So there are some national standards, but they're not enforced with no regulatory body. And many home inspectors who are qualified and have done the background work to be a good home inspector, I'm sure they'd love to see some sort of regulatory body and licensing procedure because the stories are horrific. If the home inspection is done properly, you might be able to avoid getting yourself into some really costly repairs unbeknownst to you until after the fact. So... I don't know why the government would hesitate here because they are indeed, and here's a quote coming from Minister Studley's office, purchasing a home is one of the biggest investments people make and we encourage investing in a home inspection before final date. But if people are hearing the stories about, well, who knows what kind of home inspector you're getting, I suppose the best way you can uh, proceed to protect yourself is to get a bunch of referrals. You know, for people who've had a good experience and can recommend someone to do a home inspection, because the stories that you have read in the media and that I've read in my email, you know, they all of a sudden come up with some mold issue that wasn't detected or water damage in crawl spaces. And what they thought might have been very manageable to uh, come up with some repairs, you know, to move into a new home or new to them, 
is all of a sudden what they thought might be five, six, seven thousand dollars is now thirty, forty thousand dollars in repairs that they weren't that weren't red flagged when they got the home inspected. So I'm not really sure why the province would hesitate to bring this forward. Two provinces currently have that official process in place, British Columbia and Alberta. Ontario says it's coming, and Quebec is doing the exact same thing. It might be time for us to follow suit. You know, if there was some rationale offered by the government as to why it's not a good idea or why it's not manageable, that'd be okay. But to simply say we recommend or encourage you getting a home inspection but not requiring home inspectors to be licensed, but the required training to do the job required is just sort of a bizarre thing to me. But yeah, like when we bought our home, I had my the home inspected. It was someone I knew and trusted. And I thought they did a really good job. And I haven't nothing popped up that wasn't red flagged or identified during the inspection process. So maybe it's time the government can make a move on that front because it seems like we really need it. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Rosalind. You're on the air. Hello there. I, my name is Rosalind McPhail, and I'm calling from the NL Musicians Emergency Fund, reaching out for help from the community uh, to help support musicians in need during times of crisis. So what exactly is inside the emergency uh, program? So is this because some of the slowdowns that we've seen, because there was no live gigging during COVID, or is there something more to the story that I'm not considering yet? Oh gosh, you know, it's been a really tough year for our music community and, you know, from our fund, which is a fund that we have in place to help musicians when they're in times of crisis, uh, we have musicians reaching out when they have illness, when they've been in an accident, had an injury from a show. It's it's really a fund that helps musicians from all aspects of the community. So it could be a performer, a teacher, a manager, an audio engineer, anyone from the community. What we've seen this year that's been really heartbreaking is that there's just a record number of applicants for this fund. You know, a lot of the public doesn't realize that when a musician goes through a crisis in their life, they just don't have any savings to rely on. And it can get really scary. Even myself as a performer, um, I went through a really horrible year in about 2011 where I lost my, my main paying job and I really didn't have any connections in the community to to help me get through it. And And I remember going to the food bank and, you know, having to wear a winter jacket to bed and keeping the, you know, electricity as low as possible in order to get through the winter. And it was so tough. And at that time, I just really realized that we needed a fund here in Newfoundland and Labrador that can help musicians when they're in crisis. And so we, uh, the AFM, CFM, Local 820, set that up in 2012. And since then, we have just, we've helped a number, a large number of musicians. And this year in particular, we've seen a record number of applicants and, it, you know, the fund has been greatly depleted. And so we're doing everything we can to reach out to the community to get some funds in. We're even doing a cookie drive right now where people can order cookies uh, in order to support the musicians. Okay. So... Give us an example of how and why people have fallen on hard times. Is that the opportunity to play for pay has gone by the wayside, or, or is there other things happening in their life that put them on in a difficult spot? What exactly is happening? Yeah, it's been a 
real mix. I'd say the biggest thing that we've seen this year is illness. I mean, let's face it, all of us have been getting sick. And when musicians get sick, they're not able to play their gigs. Uh, for example, this rep respiratory illness that's been happening recently has been, you know, kind of hitting the music community in such a hard way. And people are getting laryngitis and can't sing their gigs. Um, we've also seen a, a higher rate of cancer. Um, we've even seen people getting into car accidents, uh, having fires in their studios that's destroyed their studios. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on about, you know, these terrible times in our lives when we, if we don't have savings in our bank account, what do you do? What do you do? There's also going to be, I think, some increased hesitancy to take on some gigs in the downtown, considering what we've heard from various musicians about the levels of violence and the worries that they have, to just taking those jobs that they dearly love and want to perform in, but maybe, just maybe, doing a calculation that says, maybe it's not worth my time and, uh, and energy because I don't want to have my instrument stolen or I don't want to be attacked while I'm downtown. And I've heard several stories just like that, not just from musicians, but other patrons as well. Absolutely. You know, it, it's it's a time when I think a lot of us musicians don't feel safe enough to be in the clubs the way that we used to be in the clubs. And also because the venues are trying to, you know, come back in their own businesses, they're usually hiring artists that they know will sell out the shows. And so there's a lot of musicians in the community who are so talented but aren't being given the opportunities to even get on the stage yet. Our industry has definitely not bounced back as much as we'd like it to have um, at this time. Rosalind, how have you been fueling the emergency fund in the past? Gosh, we've done a whole bunch of different things. We have put on benefit shows, uh, the cookie drive I've been doing every Christmas. We've been, you know, going to different events and asking for donations. We actually just put up a, a, a we put a box into the Masonic Hall for the Spirit of Newfoundland shows, and people can donate there. If they're going to those shows, there's going to be a box there that they can they can make monetary donations. Who helps you evaluate who really needs the help, whether or not you verify what's happening in their life circumstances? Because sometimes when people are uh, donating money, they need to know that there's some oversight so that the money gets to where it's intended to. Absolutely. We take really close care and attention to every person that reaches out to us. Our application process is very, very simple. They just go to the cfm820.ca website and they can see our logo and they can press on there and they just they write a, a brief explanation to us of what's happening in their lives and then it comes back to the board of local 820 and as a board we discuss the situation in you know a very anonymous way and usually try to get the help that the musician needs within 48 hours it sounds good to me. So what would your final message, what do you like and want people to do? Because not everyone will be, have an opportunity to go to the Masonic Hall, for instance, the Masonic Temple. Yeah, so the website is CFM, Canadian Federation of Musicians, cfm820.ca. There they will see a donate button that they can they can make a donation. They are also welcome to reach out to our uh, email. And if they want to order cookies, we're doing gluten-free cookies, uh, gourmet ginger chocolate chip cookies, um, and also regular cookies uh, if you're not gluten-free. 
And it, all they have to do is send us an email. And our email is very simple. It's cfm820 at gmail.com. And we accept all donations, small, big, and uh, just really want to help get the word out there to help our musicians in the community who need it the most right now. Appreciate the time, Rosalind. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see here. Let's get to the break. When we come back, Bert, Bert wants to talk about the cost of living checks. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Bert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just want to get your opinion on this. Uh, I moved back from Ontario, I think, the 25th of April. We crossed over. Now I'm back home here, and I was wondering about that uh, cost of living check. I, mean, I got to pay the same as everybody else here in Newfoundland. I'm a born and reared Newfoundlander. So what's your opinion? Do you think I should be able to get that check? or? Well, there was eligibility issues surrounding where you were living at a certain time. Let's see if I can uh, I put a little folder aside on this one. The tax filing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, there is a residence, a residence uh, requ- uh, eligibility requirement here. Hmm. Where's the date? Can't see it right at this moment in time, but I know you had to live here in 2021 and have filed your taxes here in 2021 to be eligible for this. So when did you say you moved back? I moved back on the 25th of April of this year. Okay. And so you uh, applied and were denied? I didn't apply. I I called that number uh, three or four times so far and left messages, but I never did get a call back. Okay. I'm really struggling to find the eligibility issue regarding how long you have lived here. Uh, I don't see it at this moment in time. So, look, I've been giving out that number, and people are complaining that the number I gave them, uh, no one's answering the phone, but it's the only number available for a change of address, for instance. So it's the Tax Administration Division, uh, the number that ends in 6376, and I've given it out many, many times, and I've heard, I would imagine, from 90% of those folks that they haven't been able to talk to anyone or get a call back yet. And now the government says that like 96% of the checks are already in the mail. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just call this, you know, maybe there's somebody else in the same boat that I'm in. I I can do without it, but it'd be nice if I could get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm still trying to scan this as quick as I can to see what the eligibility issue was with uh, uh, how long you had to be living in the province to to qualify. But I'll find that uh, soon. Okay. Let me know what you find out. What I would do if I was you, because I can't find the uh, the the eligibility date there for how long you had to be living in the province. But I would apply, and the worst that can happen is you get denied. Yeah. How, uh, how would I apply it? Because I don't. I can't get any answer back from that number. Well, there's an online process that you can fill out as well. Do you use a computer? Yeah, I got, I, I got a computer, but I, I haven't got it set up on email and stuff yet. Okay, well, other than doing it online, then you're going to have to, uh, I guess, hope for some luck with the particular phone number that I'm sure you're using the, the same one that I give out, one eight seven 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 two nine six three seven six. 729 right? Yeah, that's the one. Who's the member for this area here? What area is that? In the Conception Bay area, Harbor Grace Carbonara area. Um, your member might be uh, either Pam Parsons or 
because I'm not 100% sure exactly where he lived, but maybe it's Pam Parsons who was a minister on the government side. And this is from Paul Lane. And this is what I thought is that you had to live and file taxes in Newfoundland and Labrador in 2021. And if you didn't uh, fit that bill, then you do not qualify for this check. Oh, okay. Yep. Well, that's that answers that, I guess, Patty. I guess so. That's what I thought it was, but I couldn't find it as I was scanning as quick as I could that document that I had in my folder. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. And You're, have a good Christmas. Same to you, Burke. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Right, so uh, that's what I thought the case was, is you had to be living in and filing taxes in Newfoundland and Labrador for 2021 to qualify for the cost of living check. You know, again, it's not for me to tell anybody what to do with their own money. But it did kind of jump off the page, though, that with a sliding scale, the ability to get up to $500 if you earned $100,000 or less last year, and up to $250 if you earned $125,000 last year, which is pretty good living, right? Obviously. So, of course, it could be the circumstance that someone who's making $125,000 has themselves stretched thin. We know it to be true. People kind of spend what they make, by and large. We don't save like the generations past necessarily. Well, that's so says consumer debt load anyway. So, you wonder how many people are going to take some or portion of the check and do something, you know, based on the calls that we hear and the organizations that are out there, whether it be toy drives or food drives, there's endless demand out there for some additional support. And we know it's only getting worse. I mean, I know people who make good buck, but of course, they spend a good buck, <laughs> just like it comes in, it goes out. And the amount of money in consumer debt load uh, numbers are extraordinary, highest in Canadian history. For every Every dollar coming in, Canadians, on average, are spending a dollar eighty to service their debt. I mean, that's an upside-down situation that is really completely unmanageable. And you do then wonder why uh, the Bank of Canada, of course, was so long with the very cheap money. Beginning of this calendar year, 0.25% was their benchmark interest rate. Now we've seen, what, seven or eight hikes this year. So even if you are making pretty good money and you have a certain debt load, now it wouldn't impact your credit card because that's a set rate between yourself and your credit card provider, but th for your line of credit and for your mortgage and for other loans for whatever reason that you have with a financial institu institution, bank or otherwise, what it costs to service your debt is extremely difficult, uh, different now. There's an example given for a homeowner uh, with a variable rate mortgage that at the beginning of the year, their mortgage was $1,700 and now it's $2,700. <laughs> You know, and some of this comes at you fast and furious. I'm not an economist, but when people who are in the know say that interest rate impacts are only felt some 12, 18, 24 months down the road regarding controlling inflation, then with the uh, cost of living that we see today, the consumer debt load that Canadians are carrying, any increase in the uh, interest rate is, being, is having a massive impact with Canadians and Canadian businesses right across the board. I'm out there trying to do some fundraising, and it's remarkable to me just how many companies who have been generous in the past, and they have very similar circumstances now with worries about uh, specifically the Bank of Canada. So the perfect storm, we find ourselves right in the eye of that storm. The cost of living issues, it looks like there might be some good news on the inflation front with what were the forecasted spikes uh, that economists were looking at with the consumer price index and it didn't happen in November and it didn't happen in uh, December. So it's disinflationary. We looks like we may have seen the peak. Uh, it's down under 7% now. So say the stats and of course people believe what they want to believe. But of course the proof is in the pudding. It doesn't feel like there's been any, been any relief 
For instance, at the grocery store, some minor reliefs has been uh, gained at the gas pump and diesel pump, and prices are down a little bit across the board. Whopping big decrease in the price of gasoline, almost 19 cents in parts of Labrador, which I'm sure is a welcome relief for them. But we'll all know that inflation is back under control when the Bank of Canada is able to ease up again. We'll all know that it's a little bit more under control when we go to the grocery store and are not scared stiff when we start to unload our cart at the till. But that's the issues there. There's another question been posed many times that I'm trying to get an answer to but having a bit of difficulty with. And maybe if you're an elected official listening and you have this answer and you can send it along right away, that would be great. It's about the Canada Housing Benefit. And it's a one-time tax-free $500 check that you can get. And, of course, there's all sorts of qualifications regarding net family income. And it's really quite low. But I've had this question a half dozen times is, if I live in Newfoundland Labrador subsidized housing, am I eligible to get that Canada housing benefit? The answer that I have at this moment is I don't know. I have sent along an email to the federal department asking that specific question. I suppose it's worth my while to send that question to Minister John Abbott's office as well, even though this is a federal program, not a provincial program. But I just don't know the answer to that one yet. But I'm actively trying to get it because we've had at least a half dozen people ask that. And, and it's a good question. It's where some of the communication shortfalls rear the ugly head, right? There's always going to be a bunch of different life circumstances. But things like that, you would imagine that would be, you know, top of mind when trying to create this program because a lot of people maybe who are living in a Newfoundland Labrador housing unit would absolutely qualify for their net family income being I think at the top line is $35,000 or less for a family you know that many people living in housing are exactly in that but because their housing is subsidized and it is their primary residence they don't know if they qualify but we'll try to figure it out on your behalf let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast when we come back time to speak with you topic up to you don't go away Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Good morning, Jane Patty. Yeah, I just want to, uh, we beat it to death there, but the drivers around here is just absolutely atrocious. I had to drive from CBS up to around the airport this morning, and... The amount of people that are just flying along the road, no lights on, and you know I've seen I've seen two cars hydroplane and change lanes just on their own. They're lucky they went to the second lane instead of into the ditch. Hydroplaning is extremely scary, and of course, you increase your possibility of doing it if you're going too fast, but that can be really scary. But look, the dangerous driving. I don't even know what we can say about it anymore because not only are people putting themselves at risk and everyone else around them, you're beating up your car unnecessarily, you're burning more gas than you have to, you're burning through your brakes quicker than you have to, but people are just completely oblivious. I was grocery shopping yesterday at Holly Estates, and while I was coming out of the parking lot, and this is just a very short track between the corner into the housing uh, development area and then to the lights to get out onto the Cove Road, or Torbay Road, and the young fella... And it was a young fella because I could see him through the windshield. I guarantee you he was going 120 kilometers an hour on that little stretch of road where there's a bunch of people coming in and out of parking lots. I just don't know what's going on out there, but it's crazy. It's just absolutely brutal, you know. And, like, driving, like, you know, you can't see anything out here with this fog and everything on. And people are driving around with no lights on. And they're riding up people's butts right close, and they're always on their brake, hammering the brake on and that. You know, I keep back, you know, I keep a good distance back, especially in ba bad weather. And, um, you know, people just jump right in in front of me. 
just fill that space up that's supposed to be my safe zone. Yeah, well, and especially in St. John's, for instance, with every so many feet there's a traffic light, we're all just going nowhere in a hurry. You know, you yeah. can zip past me and change lanes and be dodging in and out. I'll just see you at the next red light. That's generally speaking what happens. Uh, the business about driving without your lights on, you know, I guess some people, when they start the car and then they see some illumination against the house or whatever, but, of course, that's only the daytime runners, and they're not bright enough uh, to even see yourself looking out your windshield. But what you don't have is your taillights engaged unless you have your headlights turned on. So I know exactly. some people just get lulled into the fact that they think the lights are on because they saw them shining up against the house. But if you don't turn on your headlights in full, then no taillights unless you press the brake or put on a turn signal, which, of course, can be very dangerous in these types of pea soup conditions that we've got, especially here today. I can't even see across the road to Camel Terrace. So, like in my vehicle, I have an auto setting. And since yep. I got it, I put it on auto and I haven't changed it since. So when I turn on my vehicle, all the lights come on as opposed to me having to remember. I think I would be able to remember, but I, I'm thankful that that auto setting is just there. I just turn it on and forget about it. Yeah. So just throw it out there to all the listeners again. Turn your lights on, slow down, and be respectful of the people around you. Yeah, there's a lot of aggressive driving out there. That much, I think, certainly everyone in this neck of the woods would agree. And we've got these notorious spots where it seems to be worse than other areas. Simply because a road is wide doesn't mean it's a racetrack. It just means that it happens to be a wide road. So I'd, I'm kind of tired even thinking about it and talking about it. But my most recent bugaboo with all this stuff is the numbers of people I see running red lights. Just have never seen the like. Don't know what's going on. You know, it's not a suggestion. Red means stop. Doesn't mean Yellow doesn't mean speed up. You know, but the red lights, they're everywhere. People running them are absolutely rampant. Yeah, it is. So, But anyways, if you want to make it through Christmas out there, people... Slow down, make it through, and have a happy, have, have a Merry Christmas. Same to you, Rob. All the best. Okay, cheers. Okay, bye-bye. And, you know, I guess people just simply don't do the calculations. I'll admit, when I first got my license, I drove too fast. Absolutely did. You know, I spent an awful lot of time on the loud pedal, as they call it. But maybe just because I'm a bit older, you know, when you're zipping around, you're burning more gas, you're hard around the brakes, and at the end of the day, you're not getting anywhere any quicker than anyone else when you're driving around the city of St. John's. You're just not. You know, it's impossible to make up time driving around town. There are uh, traffic lights are just absolutely everywhere. And I guess that's part of the reason why the Ring Road becomes the proverbial racetrack, because there are no lights. And it is a bit quicker to get from point A to point B when you're able to use the Ring Road. But that is just madness, too. This morning was an opportunity to drive to work in the dark and the fog and the rain, and yet you'll always get that collection of heroes in the left lane going like a bat out of hell as if it's a bright summer's day with perfect visibility and driving conditions. And this morning, that wasn't the case. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, that didn't work. You want me to see if we can get that person back there, David? They want to talk about who qualifies for the housing the Canada Housing Benefit. And, of course, those thresholds are really quite low. Someone sent an email yesterday that I thought made a nice or an interesting point. Is that when the federal government tried to consider what pandemic supports would look like, in particular the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, and they came up with $2,000 a month. So that adds up to $24,000 per year. At some point, some of the programs they put forward, you have to earn far less than that to even get some of these additional benefit, one-time top-ups. So 
on one hand, they're thinking that that's an appropriate amount of money for people to be able to keep the wolf away from the door when there was so much uncertainty and so many people lost either hours of work or lost their job entirely because the business shut down temporarily. You know, the issue with the CERB, you know, I, I see people say this, and I read people's uh, thoughts on this all the time with that. It's the number one contribution to inflation in many people's minds has been the amount of money that the government of Canada has sent out, specifically in individual support and support for businesses at the beginning of the pandemic. The other side of that equation is, and I, and I don't know if they've considered this, is that just imagine if the supports were so little or non-existent because some people say, well, it could have been achieved through tax cuts and uh, whatnot, when in fact tax, tax cuts really only benefit the highest earners and the businesses. So they decided to go with the CERB and the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. For folks who were ineligible for CERB who got it anyway, look, if you knew full well that you were not eligible but applied, then absolutely there's got to be some consideration of how we get that money back. You know, and there was thousands and tens of thousands of illegitimate claimants out there who got the CERB. And the government of Canada, we're looking, we're talking about billions of dollars that they're trying to, they're considering trying to recoup. But for folks who were in a terrible circumstance, because there was a lot of gray area inside eligibility for the SERP, for instance, uh, notably for self-employed people. So we're going to go ahead and claw back money from them. And for some people who are already in a terrible circumstance, we're going to claw it back. It's a bit of blood out of turnip stuff. And it's going to cost money to recover the money. So a calculation has to be done there. One area where government is loath to look is how people evaluated the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. It was extremely helpful for businesses, but only for those businesses that use it the way it was intended. And that was to keep your employees on the payroll. And the government was going to be able to cover up to 75% of their pay. But what we saw, unfortunately, and nobody's talking about this at the governmental level about getting money back, is businesses that for the first time created a stock dividend and or increased their dividends and or showed surpluses. It wasn't for that. And you know full well that a lot of companies are in exactly that boat because the one example I use, and I think it's a good one, is the Royal Ottawa Golf Club. At their annual general meeting at the end of 2021 or 2020, uh, the treasurer announced to the uh, dues-paying members is that the golf club showed a surplus of a million dollars. And we know golf saw a bit of a boon, right? It was a safe out outdoor activity. We did some silly things, like you weren't allowed to take the flag out of the hole, as if we were getting COVID from the flag stick. But the treasurer was asked, how did we come up with that surplus? I know that we've had uh, greater activity on the course and more tee times booked. And the treasurer said, no, no, the $1 million surplus because of the wage subsidy. That's saying the quiet part out loud. That was not what the wage subsidy was intended for. So we're happy enough to see government's claw back from folks who have very little to nothing. But no talk about the billions of dollars that went out the door in the form of a wage subsidy. Because there's a lot of money there that was not used the way it was crafted or structured. Anyway, will I take this one here, Dave? Uh, line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Oh, hello, Patty. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, pretty good. First time caller, long time listener. Terrific. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Uh, about the uh, $500 one top up fee, uh, Newfoundland Labor Housing, apparently, when I called, my income is only uh, 25%. So apparently, I don't qualify. Yeah, right off the bat, uh, right off the bat, the rent has to be 30% of your net income. Yeah. Yep. 
So what do people like, you know, that's why how that's why housing is there for low income, right? Uh people who need it more. But uh yeah, I don't quite understand only five percent takes away five hundred dollars from people who, you know, probably need it more than anybody else. Well, if you're eligible based on your net family income, absolutely you could use this $500 tax-free one-time bump because here's the thresholds that people had to meet. 35000 or less for families, 20000 or less for individuals. So even if your rent is only 25% of your 2021 adjusted net family income and you only make $19,500, man, that's a pretty stingy place to cut it off. Yeah, quite Yeah. I want, like you said, with all these people who uh, collected the uh, CRB, whatever it was called, uh, I mean, a lot of those people didn't even need it, um, you know. It's true. There's lots of people who got it who necessarily were quite able to weather the storm without it. For instance, my two live at home. Now, Nicholas didn't lose hours. He continued to work. Uh, Jack did lose some hours. And then he said, can I apply for the the CERB? And I said, you technically can, but do you really need it? I mean, you live for nothing here. And so he said, well, this might be prolonged uh, loss of job, so I'm going to apply. And he did, and he got one payment, and then that was that. Because once you got any hours back on, I said, Jack, look, you just really don't need it, so let's not do it. But you know full well there was lots of people, whether it be living with their parents and or they lost some hours but not enough to have the wolf chomping at their uh, their heels and they got it we know there was lots of people who maybe could have done without but therein lies the rub isn't the caller is that when the government tried to do something in the essence of speed then a lot of the oversight required for government funding was not in place and consequently billions of dollars went out that probably shouldn't have yes and that's why a lot of people are homeless today because they couldn't uh, you know qualify for this stuff um it's pretty sad situation. I mean, I, I they don't want to see you get ahead, I guess, you know. I mean, here you put one foot in front of you and you got to go 10 feet back. I mean, it's just it's outrageous. Yeah, uh, it is. And I've learned a lot about what's actually going on out there in the community simply because of the job that I have and the stories that I hear. I'll never be able to understand how some people are making ends meet. No idea. Well, um, I don't know what they're going to do with people uh, only paying twenty-five percent of their income. I mean, I, I, like, I mean, five percent. I mean, come on, right? Yeah. I. Yeah, I get it. I'd be frustrated if I was in your shoes as well. Oh, not only me. There's thousands of us. Right? Oh yes, I mean, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So something has to be done with this. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> No argument here. There's an entire, whether it be a combination of the social safety net, those who are, for example, the working poor, those who are barely making ends meet, all of the different boutique tax cuts and social programs and top-up funds, whether it be provincially or federally, they add up to a whopping big sum. And not just because of the pandemic, even pre-pandemic. But yet it hasn't made an appreciable difference in a lot of people's lives. Yes, I know the government uh, touts the success of the Canada tax benefit or the child tax benefit to bring families out of poverty, even though they changed what uh, constituted poverty uh, in the middle of it to make the numbers look a little bit better than they probably are. But I appreciate you making time, and I'm sorry to hear you're 5% short of uh, access to that 500 bucks. 
Yeah, I just thought I'd call in and let you know because I heard you uh, talking about it and I just got off the phone with the CRA in housing and I said, you know, I must give you a call and let the people of housing know that uh, if they only pay 25% of their income, they're not eligible. So. I hear you. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Take good care. You too. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Kevin, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Paddy. How you doing? Grant, how you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Paddy, I got uh, wind of that $500 the federal government for help people with uh, cost of living or rental, the rent rent for rent. Canada Housing Benefit, Uh, yes. Yes, that one, exactly. Uh, I was looking for that number. I only got wind of it yesterday, and I didn't know the number of it, who to get a hold to. Would you happen to know that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so right off the bat, the portal for application just started a couple of days ago. It runs until March of next year. Let's see okay. if there's a phone number here. Uh, yeah, sure. It's, it's generally going to be one of the uh, the general uh, contact numbers for the government. Let's see if I can right. find it very quickly here. Okay. Okay. One eight hundred. Okay. Two eight two. Two eight two. Eighty seventy nine. Eighty seventy nine. That's her. Eighty seventy nine. Yeah. Okay. That's great. I'll uh, check that out, Patty. That'll be uh, that'll help a lot of people, I'm sure. And Patty, another thing about the cost of living checks, the five hundred dollars. Yep. Like you're saying, there's about, what, 96 98% that received them out already? Well, they're in the mail, yep. Many but, have yeah, received um, them. Yes, and like they're talking about only about 3 or 4 or 5% that didn't receive them. And I'm one of those, and uh, I, I'm on low income, I, you know. I am entitled to it, but uh, the thing was, like you said, you had to you have your taxes done for 2021. That's right. And mine, uh, only have, between the jigs and the reels, I finally got it done, uh, no, uh November the tenth actually was approved. Now they get GST, and I did call Siobhan Cody's office this morning, talking to her secretary, and I explained to her that the four percent. And I was talking to also the CRA. She said to me that they do send the province like for that five hundred like every day whoever done their tax to get it done. But uh, apparently here in this province are telling me you're not going to get it till January probably. That's what it looks like for people who filed yeah. October uh, after. October. October 1st, it's probably going to be the new year before you get the check, yeah? Right, yeah, and uh, no, I was just said to uh, Siobhan's uh, secretary, I said, uh, I mean, with only 3 or 4 or 5%, why, you know, all them people are working on the checks, why couldn't they help the few people out that did receive and check with the CRA that they did have their taxes done, you know? Just quite, you know, uh, you know I can understand why they wouldn't do that. <laughs> Well, I don't know either, but that was the information we got from the department itself, is that if you file October 1st or after, it will absolutely very likely be the new year before you get your check. New year. Yeah, yeah, that's from Heron. Absolutely. Patty, thank you for that. I enjoy your program, by the way. I listen to you every morning. I appreciate that. Uh, And thanks for being a first-time caller. Good luck with getting the housing benefit, too. So you know about all the other eligibility issues? Well, uh, not a lot. That's, uh, after that 500 cost of living check, well, that uh, rent, now that, that just came up on me. I didn't know about it, didn't realize. So out of that, I can check with them, I guess, when I'm talking to them. Yeah, you okay. can. And uh, just for information purposes, you can call that number Monday to Friday, and you can also call it for a, a period of time on Saturday. I believe it's from 9 to 5. 
okay. on Saturday as well, but no opportunity on Sunday. Okay. Well, Paddy, thank you very much, and uh, have a good Christmas, you, David, and all your families. Thanks, Kevin. Same to you and yours. Okay. Thank you, buddy. You're, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, there was some confusion there, and then there's there's a few things where there's been some hiccups, and this is always going to be the case. When I think the program cost about $194 million, and there's some 392,000 people in the province who are eligible for that one-time $500 bump, Two things that I still don't have firm grasp, uh, grasp on is we're told tax-free, uh, but does that also mean federally tax-free? It's one thing for the province to put forward an exemption, and they're partnering with CRA for information purposes to know who filed their taxes so that whether or not they're eligible, but I can't get anyone to tell me whether or not it's exempt from all levels of taxation because it's fine not to have to pay a provincial contribution on it, but if people get caught with their proverbial pants down come tax time because it is taxable federally, people would like to know. Same thing when we saw some of the problems on the heels of the CERB. We were told right off the bat, one thing we did know, is that it was taxable income. It becomes difficult for many people to take out the tax dollar from your $2,000 check and to stow it away for tax time because you know full well a significant swath of the population that got the CERB found themselves in a bit of a pickle come tax time because they did not save for that particularly rainy tax day. So you know that's happening as well. And yes, if you didn't file until after October, you're probably going to be into January before you get your check. And then the whole business about folks who got it, for, one, uh, for a loved one, for instance, who had passed away, and they're still going to be eligible to get it. You can just cash it in the name of the estate, and that's what we're told to do. For your own comfort, you can indeed call the Tax Administration Division at the Department of Finance provincially just to get that bit of yay from the gov before you do something that might catch you in a bit of hot water. But that's what they told us, is if there's an estate and you are the administrator of or the executor of, you can simply cash it in that person's name and make it part of their estate. Then there was the issue of people who had moved. And you know full well people moved since they filed their taxes necessarily. And there was an easy way to get your change of address recorded so that you did indeed get it. But there's one story that I'm not so sure has been rectified as of yet is that there was some people living in apartment buildings and the checks went out. Oh, pardon me, they had not gone out yet because there was apartment address, the apartment building address was on file, but not the person's actual apartment number. So... You couldn't just be flicking checks in every mailbox in every apartment building because not everyone in that building was probably eligible for the check itself. So, And people 18 and over, and again, you'll do as you see fit with your own money coming in the door, regardless if it's a cost of living check or a Canada housing benefit or whatever the case may be. But I know and I hear from many people who tell me that they're in a pretty good spot. And they don't necessarily need that $500, so they're going to try to see if it can brighten or ease the burden on some folks this particular holiday season. All right, last check on the Twitter box for VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And tomorrow we will indeed pick up this conversation on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.